is not a dream. Not a dream. We are using your brain's electrical system as a receiver. We are unable to transmit through a conscious neural interface. You are receiving this podcast as a dream. We are transmitting from the year one, nine, nine, nine. You are receiving this podcast in order to alter the events you are seeing. Our technology has not developed a transmitter strong enough to reach your conscious state of awareness, but this is not a dream. You are seeing what is actually occurring for the purpose of podcast. I put podcast in there three times. I was just waiting for it. I don't know. I didn't know I what you were going to do. I don't know either. I don't know either. I don't know either. Frankly, I don't know either. That's okay. You did great. If you'll let me be frank, I don't know either. No, it was good. It was good. It was really good. I don't know. What if they opened the cylinder and Kevin Spacey came out in the apron and he said, let me be frank. Let me be frank. Mm. <laughs> you well, said, is... let me be frank. I had to, I had to invoke of, it. No, of course. Talking I mean... about the Prince of Darkness after all. Exactly, right? This movie is about anti-God, so we should mention Kevin Spacey <laughs> as early on as possible. He has no involvement in this movie, but it's clearly, it's clearly a, a Carpenter trying to weigh in on the, the Spacey shit 25 years early. Right? He's warning us about the future. What happens in 1999? American Beauty. Oh, no. Keep it, you know, keep the your second, third eye open. We give that guy a second Oscar, all hell will break loose. <laughs> is that post-K-Pax or pre-K-Pax? Pre. Okay. K-Pax is his post-second Oscar. It was like, all right, Kevin, you can play a sunglasses-wearing alien. K-Pax mm. is definitely the, the canister starting to drip. <laughs> right. Yeah. K-Pax falls it. in line with ceiling. this analogy. It's on the ceiling. <laughs> So what's the, like the final manifestation of of the evil then at that point? Well, what let me be would... frank. Okay, yeah, okay. yeah. No, his his most evil film, the yeah. first. <laughs> let me be frank. I think, right? Yeah, probably. I don't know. Beyond the Sea, that was pretty evil. I'm trying to think <laughs> yeah, of yeah. <laughs> let no, but let me be frank. Is the final manifestation? That's that's when Satan has revealed himself. Well, yes, that's right. Exactly. There's no pussyfooting around a move. He it's is, a manifesto. He is Satan. Hello. Right. Yes. Right. 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 Oh, what a terrible start to the episode. Yeah. It's my fault. Horrible. Yep. Yeah. Shouldn't have let you be frank. Um, hello, everybody. This is Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David. It's a podcast about filmographies. I'm going into full NPR mode right now for for some reason. But it is a podcast about filmographies. Directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want, and sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they slowly seep out of a giant canister in the basement of a church. Baby. And this is a miniseries we've been doing on the films of John Carpenter. It is called They Podcast because I was outvoted. Oh, get, get over it. I won't. enough. I will enough. not. Get over it. It's, it's the better option. I mean, all right, just say it. Just tell our guests what you were thinking of calling the miniseries. I wanted to call the miniseries Podscape from Newcast. Terrible. As one does. As one does. Not do. No. No. As one does. As one does. Uh, guest, I will introduce you in a moment, but I would love to hear your opinion first. All right. I listened to all these episodes that have aired so far. And okay. actually... Griffin, I'm, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to kiss up to you, but I actually kind of like that one. Yes, <laughs> yes. Oh, oh my god! Bad start. 
No. We are off to the wrong foot. I'm sorry. No, we're going to have to stop no, recording it's, it's and start fine. over. It's fine. It's Our fine. guest today is an esteemed film critic, a man of impeccable taste. <laughs> <laughs> Nary a wrong opinion. From the last picture show and, and numerous outlets, Keith Phipps. Hello, it's actually the next picture show. God damn it! Yeah, I, I got it. Sorry. Well, see, but you still it's, like me, I did though, the right? Bogdanovich. Yeah. No, I do. I do. I just thought about the movie you guys are riffing on rather than the riff that you guys have done on that movie title. One of the coolest things that resulted from that podcast, by the way, is someone who worked at the theater that they, you know, is that theater, put yeah. our, our podcast name up on the marquee. So it was like, that uh, yeah. is cool. Keith, it's long overdue. Welcome. Yeah. Oh well, I, um, thank you. I'm I'm a fan of the show. I'm I'm happy to to, to contribute in any way I can to this uh, Carpenter commentary. And Keith, you you are one of sort of the the origin story figures for this show in terms of breaking David Sims. Uh, yeah. Well, I, Emily Vanderwerf deserves credit for discovering uh, David. But Sims we we've given and, her a lot of credit. I'm I'm trying to give you a little credit here. Well, she sent him my way, and I and I put him on the as we were I discussing. If I can before, find the email. Yeah, we, we were just discussing pre, uh, pre-taping, pre uh, we gave him the shows that nobody else wanted or were sick of or had toxic fandoms and kind of threw, threw him in the end. Keith and I were uh, just talking about It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Was that the first one? Do you remember what the that very That was my first, first one. one. Okay. Yes, yes, At yes. what point? When were you starting to recap that in the run of the show? Uh, we're talking 2009. I found the email. Tuesday, oh, wow. September 15th, 2009. Uh, hi, David. Uh, Emily suggested you be a good freelancer to cover it. So I see Sonny and forwarded me your resume and clips. I agree. Welcome wow. aboard. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's me. And you don't know actually how tough it was at that point to get in. Cause I, I was, I really did not want to hire very many freelancers. Emily no, was, like a per- was, was really key to like bringing in some more voices, but I treated that place like a, like a, a band with a set membership for a long time. <laughs> so uh, you were, you were part of this, the sec- the, the expanded lineup. I was part of the, right, Emily's sort of, you know, uh, TV freelancer kind of mm-hmm. cabal that came in uh, as the t- the TV recap, online recap sort of culture began right right around then. That was sort of the start. For better or for worse, we made our contribution to that. <laughs> yep. Uh, and uh, Griff, to answer your question, that would have been, I think it's the fourth, or, I think it's the fifth season okay. of It's Always Sunny. So just to give you a sense of how fucking long that show's been on yes it's 16 is the next season going to be 16 or 15 the next season is going to be 15 okay it's the longest running live action sitcom ever now right my entire yes. paid yes. career yeah begins with it's always sunny and i'm like oh it must have begun with season one no season no. five and it's still going <laughs> can i yeah. uh, can i fucking sidebar here for a second yeah of course you can I was recently in uh, uh, La- Los Angeles, City of Stars. Uh, sure. La La Land. Yes. Uh, I went to get drinks with uh, some friends. Uh, in fact, uh, writers on uh, uh, Masters of the Universe Revelation, a, a very non-controversial show that everyone is calm about <laughs> online. Uh, uh, Tim Sheridan, Eric Carrasco, uh, Diamitra, uh, great people. We were at this bar, and then it turned out it was a trivia night. Okay. Now, David, the cornerstone of our friendship is a trivia night. That's true. That's how we really became close pals, as we've discussed. Right. It was the second time we ever hung out. Uh, uh, Pilot Virouette, another vet of uh, AV Club, uh, invites us to trivia. We become uh, inseparable. Right. Uh, I would get competitive about trivia. I take trivia very seriously. I have very particular taste in terms of how trivia works. 
This was a general trivia night run by a man who, dare I say, it was a bit of a lightweight. Oh, dear. And we have, we have uh, specific tastes, I would say. Very. When it comes to trivia masters, yes. Very specific tastes. Mm. He asked a question. It was the final round. We were either, I think we were tied for first place at this point. And his question was, name the top 10 longest running U.S. shows currently in prime time. Top 10. Oh, currently in prime. Currently. Time. Okay. So we start okay. just working on fucking network, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Assuming those are the confines of what he's putting before us. And then like five minutes into the eight minutes you have to work on this question. He's like, just to clarify, cable counts syndication counts oh boy and syndication like, counts well, right what? so we're like what by syndicate do, are you saying anything that's in syndication are you saying just because things in reruns or what are you talking about currently airing or currently producing new episodes so everything goes fucking caution in the wind but then we realize okay well now we know three of the ones that have to fit in here always sunny in philadelphia the longest running comedy show period that must count then right. we're like archer that's in season 12. That must count. And uh, uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm is it's up to season 10. Okay? So we put those three down. None of them count in his eyes. Oh, boy. This guy sounds like he blew it. And this also is a classic Griff rant of, like, listen to this trivia screw-up, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But always was there logic to this, or, or what was the explanation? What were the answers? Someone went up to him and brought up Curb. The, I mean, it was like the fucking things you'd, you'd think, right? So it was like uh, SVU, The NCIS, Simpsons, right. NCIS. We didn't get NCIS LA. That was stupid. We thought it hadn't run that long. Uh, Blue Bloods we missed. And the third one we missed was Chicago Fire. Um, uh, Bob's Burgers counted. Family Guy counted. American Dad counted, even though it moved to TBS. But apparently FX doesn't. Yeah, I don't think this, and none of these shows are like syndication, and only one of them is cable no, or whatever. Like, I'm this so, is and super. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, good sir. You are in an industry town. People are going to take the guidelines of this question very seriously. I'm forgetting what the other ones were, but it just drove me crazy. And someone went up to him and complained about uh, him not including uh, Kirby Enthusiasm. His response was, well, it's HBO. Well, it's not TV. It's in the tagline there, actually. So, But FX is TV. Anyway, today we're talking about a movie called Prince of Darkness. It's about a jar full of Satan. It's wet Satan. It's basically wet Satan. Yeah, John Carpenter's wet Satan. Li- liquid Devil. This movie <laughs> is, is so good. This movie fucking rules. Okay. I, I could I not to, believe. I need to say this right off the bat. Okay. I feel like I need to watch this movie like two more times. I, I, I felt very overwhelmed by this movie. Why were you overwhelmed by this movie? This movie is dense in a lot of ways. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Yeah. A lot of chat. It's a lot of chat. It's a lot of dense text. You're dealing with, like, metaphysics and with theology. And yes. it's a, a, a the movie is primarily made up of academics debating how this could exist and what is happening. Yes. Kind of horny, though, academics, yes. right? I watched yeah. it this morning. I'm very burnt out. I, I was paranoid all of yesterday. I had COVID. I don't think I do. But I just, I started watching this and I was like, my, my brain is already being pushed to the limits. I'd forgotten how long it takes before anything beyond discussion really happens. Very I mean, long It's time. long build up, so much foreboding detail. 
And then, then eventually all hell breaks loose, but it does take a while. Yeah, li- quite literally all hell breaks yeah, loose. true. I don't dislike this movie at all. I, I mean, I just find all Carpenter movies at this point, and perhaps I will eat my words when we get to the late 90s, but I find them all very comforting to watch for how unnerving they are. They are just so well-made, so well-crafted, but I had a hard time processing the actual meat of this movie beyond the visuals, which I love. I feel like this is the for dedicated fans, Carpenter. It, you know, this, is, yes. this is like, you know, the equivalent of the album that's not the canonical album, but it's the one that people really love. It's like, I don't, I don't want to hear Highway 61 Revisited. I want to hear Infidels or something like that. Uh, you know, this, is, this is that. I absolutely believe I will come to love this movie. But it was a movie, and I have this sometimes, where I put it on and I went, man, I can't wait to have seen this two more times. Hmm. Reigns of Darkness. David, it was your first time watching it and you loved it because you're smarter I, than me. I'm not smarter than you. You are. I, you are. You're taller and you're smarter. <laughs> um, but I do. It's it's embarrassing that I didn't really know what this was about. For some yeah. reason, I had a completely different conception. I knew it was sort of set in one location and I knew that it was... Pleasance as a priest. Right. Pleasance was in it and that it was about, you know... the let's call him the Prince of Darkness, essentially, if you will, in some form. Mr. Beelzebub. But everything you're describing, where you're like, yeah, it's a lot of sort of like weird chat and kind of an odd stilted atmosphere. And then like, you know, things go absolutely buck wild. And there's this sort of weird sort of like crossing of science and mysticism. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly like that's I just wish more movies were like this. It's, it, it's it, your shit. I, I want to make it clear. I don't dislike any of those things. I just felt like I might not be in the headspace to process this properly right now. I assume we'll talk a little quarter mass on this episode, which sure. is not something I know well, obviously, but I know is a huge influence on this movie. And maybe really want to watch those quarter mass movies. I feel like I'm going to like uh, Mr. Dr. Quarter mass. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the pedant here, but it's, it's quarter mass, I believe. Quatermass, sorry. Dr. Quatermass. Our Mummy episode just came out yesterday on Patreon, and I saw someone on the Reddit complaining that we misspelled, misspelled, mispronounced. Fraser. Because we're saying it like Fraser Crane, but he's Fraser. Mm -hmm. That's one of those things where I'm like, I think the boat might have gone out on that one. It's like yes. everyone calls him Brendan Fraser. Like, right. well, you know, and it seems like we've been getting it wrong, I guess. I don't know. He's Canadian, right? Or he's uh, of Canadian descent. I don't know. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Sorry. Yeah. But there's that thing. If there's a more popular word that looks similar to the thing, it's hard not to autocorrect in your brain like Quatermass, where you're like, well, quarter. I see the word quarter a lot. Yeah, but I, I still I don't see so the word quarter. It's Quatermass. Yeah. Ben, cut it all out. Keep it in. Keep it in. Double it. Fraser, Fra- Brendan Fraser. I don't see the word Quater a lot. Have you seen any of the Quater Mass stuff, guys? Uh, have you seen? Uh, I've only seen the uh, nineteen, I want to say uh, sixty-seven movie, which is actually Quater Mass in the Pit. Yeah, which is which is great, um, and it's like that is what I have seen. I saw it many years ago. Yeah, there were three TV serials, and then there were three movies, and this is a remake of the third TV serial, if I'm not mistaken, but holding yes. cast. Anyway, it's really good, and and 
I mean, we, you know, you can't really talk about this without talking about Nigel Neal in general and Halloween three. I don't know how deep you want to get in the weeds. Let's get in the weeds. Let's get, get in the, the weeds, weeds man, baby. Whatever. Yeah. Oh, I mean, Nigel you can call Neal... me Mary Louise Parker because I'm willing to go deep into weeds at this point. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, Nigel Kirk. Neal is, 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 was pr- most famous for doing British television. Um, and, you know, I think his fame over there is um, much higher than it is. His profile is much higher there than here i don't know if anyone can speak to this or not uh on this podcast but i don't think so i can't check all four boxes one two three four no i don't think anyone can unless they want to butt in right now. nigel neal it's one of those things where you know um there's these britain loves to reflect on its culture right and do constant like uh, shut up constant like documentaries and sort of talking head type you know pop culture-y things right and it's always a bunch of comedians being like, oh, I love Quatermass. And like they talk about it, right? You know, and like, and then you cut to this guy who's this just, I mean, Nigel Neal, he's so cool, but it's like this old guy in a suit is like, yeah, you know, I worked at the BBC and you know, I thought it was all a bit of fun. And he's just like, it's always the funniest to finally see the mind behind like the twisted sci fi that, that changed a generation in Britain. And it's this oh, yeah. sort of sweet grumpy man anyway nigel neal yes revered in england yeah and his only real significant foray into hollywood was his uncredited work on halloween 3 which he you know apparently he came over to work on creature from the black lagoon for john landis and that never happened and i guess joe dante pointed in the direction of john carpenter for halloween 3 but if you if you see that movie uh, he took his name off of it because he didn't like the direction it went in and and he and, and carpenter apparently got quite grumpy with one another but, um, you, you know, it is kind of in the, in the line with a lot of what else he did, which is, is common, you know, combining science and, um, you know, the supernatural, um, you know, ultimately Quatermass and the pit is about how what we think of the devil is just ancient memories of aliens that formed us or something like that. And, and I think probably most relevant, I haven't seen a lot of his stuff, but I did watch in to prepare for this. I watched the stone tape. Have you anyone seen that? The it was stone like, tape. 1972 TV movie. That's one of his big, like, BBC specials that is not quite like, along with what's it called? The Sex Olympics. Yeah, uh, the, year the, the Year of the Sex year Olympics. Year of the Sex Olympics. I've not seen, but the title is very intriguing. I'm I've sorry, never seen what? either. I know it mostly because of its title. It's also, but it is a very famous in Britain, you know, very highly regarded piece of TV, um, which is set in like a sort of Orwellian future where. Uh, the government controls mass media and blah, blah, blah. You know, like, it, it sounds very cool. I have not seen it. I have also not seen the stone tape, which is like, it's kind of like a ghost story, right? Or like a haunted house thing. Well, it's very much like Prince of Darkness, where it is about a um, a recording company, if I remember correctly, uh, that's just trying to try out a new recording equipment in an old house, because that's what you do when you're when you're a 70s British scientist. Uh, you go to an old, an old manor uh, house, uh, and what the gist of it is basically that what they think of as ghosts is actually the the house recording old events, but the deeper they investigate, they find out that, that, that what they're recording, the evil actually predates the house itself, which is another kind of equator mess in the pit thing, which is also another Halloween three thing where it's like this ancient lore being tied to science in some way. So, you know, the homage uh, is pretty direct with Prince of Dark. Um, that's cool. Now I have to watch it because it sounds awesome. Not 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 to sidetrack, but what's your take on the Halloween three? Do you guys like that movie? 
I love Halloween 3. Griffin, have you seen Halloween 3? No, we keep on going over this. I've only seen the oldest and the most recent Halloween movies. You're you're mm. you're you're a twin poles, right? Halloween right. 3 is the best reason for us to ever like do those commentaries cuz it's such a cool weird movie. But you know Halloween 3, Griff, like you know the mask, I do. you know I some do. of the sort of imagery of it. It's the one I find most enticing and I've been meaning to dig in and watch all of them now. Cuz I mean, tis the season, tis the season. I should mention that tis is the season. Uh, I recently did the Atlantic likes me to do these sort of like weird underrated movies lists that I do occasionally. Um, and I threw Halloween three on there and that got the most pushback. People really still, as much as it's now a beloved cult object. Yeah. Heart, you know, it's, it's more polarizing than most. Well, I think people still feel tricked by it because it's not, yep. you know, you show up yeah. for Halloween three and there's no Michael Myers in it. Um, oh yeah. You know, I've realized we all have the most important detail of all, which is, the Prince of Darkness is, is, is credited to a screenwriter named Martin Quatermass, which is, of course, John Carpenter. Doesn't exist. Now, obviously, aside from the, the cuteness of the homage of that pen name, do we know why he didn't take the credit himself on this? It is bizarre. Is it just that he wanted to do that homage? I guess. I can, I can tell you, Griff. It's in our uh, research. Um, okay. Basically, he decided he did not want the public to know he wrote the script. I don't know why that is. Right. That's my central question. Right. Uh, And he, but he did want to pay tribute to Nigel Neal. So he thought it would be cute to, you know, use this pen name. And then he wrote a fictional biography for Martin Quatermass in the press kit. Right. Uh, that said, like, he was a rocket scientist from the British 1950s, uh, and he graduated from, quote, Neil University. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, like, he was being cute. And on the film's commentary, apparently, he's like, I heard Quatermass retired. I think he's an alcoholic. No one wants to read what he writes anymore. Like, he, so he's having a little fun. But I don't know why he was suddenly in his head about... That's right. That's my question. Getting it's screenwriting odd. credits. I don't know. Yeah. That's funny, though, because if you go back and read the reviews most critics didn't seem to get it. And like, the, I didn't know there was a press kit because I thought one who did was Michael Phillips of the LA uh, Times who wrote something like, he's the cousin of the, the British uh, astrophysicist Bernard Quatermass. I thought it was like a little wink thing, but maybe that's what Carpenter was putting out there as, as, a, as a fact at the time. I think, yeah, I think, he, I think it was, uh, uh, what's, what's the, the name of the very real person who wrote uh, Logan Lucky where they created a fake biography for her as well? Uh, yes, and that movie was probably just written by uh, Jules Asner. Right, right. Most people think um, Jules Asner. Rebecca wrote that Blunt movie. is the fake name. Interesting. Re- Rebecca Blunt. Okay, uh, is the fake name. But yes, yeah. Jules Asner is the is the writer. Yeah, Prince of Darkness. Yeah. So, uh, Keith, do you know how this movie got made? Because I didn't until our researchers dug into it, and it's, it's so cool. Kind of fascinating. Yeah, uh, a little bit because it was his four picture deal with with a live films, right? Right, which comes yes. off of the back of him doing four big budget, quote unquote, studio movies in a row. So it's like Thing, his ultimate blank check. Then Christine is him trying to recover from the flop of uh, Thing. Uh, Starman, him shifting genre a little bit. And then Big Trouble in Little China, which I think was like another, like, we gave you this much money again mm-hmm. and you did something this weird again. Like, he had just sort of built himself back up. And he, at that point, is even more disillusioned with the film industry than he ever had been before. And it's just like, I'm fucking done. I don't want to play this game. I don't want to work within this system. 
I'm out. It's also funny that there's this quote from him where he's like, I need to take time off. I needed like a long break. I uh, had made too many movies. I want a vacation. I want to cool it. He had done 11 movies in 15 years. Which is crazy. Which is crazy. But his break does not last long. But right. But also like an 11 movie run that is, you know, pretty creatively unparalleled. Yes. You know, like, you know. And work intense. Those are not easy films to make. It's not like knocking off a a quiet little drama. No. None of them are, uh, you know, um, big budget. I mean, like even his biggest budget movie, The Thing, like even that, you know, was a huge pain in the ass to make. Like he's never comfortable. And yet at the same time, all these interviews, he's basically like, look, I always wanted to work in the studio system and then I did and I realized they suck. Now, John Carpenter always comes off as an ornery grump, like yes. in every interview. God love him. I, mm-hmm. I, full respect to the man. He He's right to be grumpy. But uh, it is that funny kind of careful what you wish for thing where he's like, well, you know, I did everything myself and that was a pain. And then I finally got the money to have other people do it. But then they were asking me all these questions. These jerks. Like, <laughs> they don't fucking butt. trust me. Everything's yeah. bad. I just feel like every time uh, uh, Nick and JJ put the um, dossier together for us, there's a quote from John Carpenter saying, like, after making this movie, I realized I didn't like this industry. It makes no sense to me. I don't want to be part of it. He just, like, keeps coming to that realization over and over again. But yes, he's got this fucking quote where he's like, I need to take a vacation. I need to cool. I've been burning the candle at both ends. I've made fucking 11 movies in 15 years. Prince of Darkness comes out the year after Big Trouble. And not only that, it's the first film, as you said, Keith, in a four-picture deal he signed to make four movies in five years. Like, he's right away re-upping and getting right back into the deep end. Um, But the terms of his deal with Alive were all he needed to submit was a synopsis, like a one-sentence synopsis, and if they like the synopsis, he gets $3 million complete creative control. So the budget's never going to go over three. He has to design something that can fit into $3 million, but all he has to do is give them like the one-liner pitch, and he's off. This thing is crazy for $3 million. I know it's set in one location, and that's how he's saving money, but you, in 1987, like the, this is a tiny budget for a movie with this kind of, you know, makeup and effects and yeah like yeah it's well, impressive it, it does seem like though with, with this and they live is like you make whatever you want as long as you make it in the parts of los angeles that nobody wants to film in i think that's a big part of it i think it's like the the name guy in this movie is pleasance his main dude but not like a fucking a-list movie star you know a big genre no, right. guy at this point he's got the cachet from being the through line on halloween right he's got the guy from simon and simon the, right. the lesser, uh, the lesser right. of the two yeah. Simons is, is a <laughs> right, right. Sure. The shittier Simon, lowercase. But yeah, Simon. No, it is not a hot uh, cast of, of up and coming stars or anything like that. Even yeah, it's 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 a lot of you know workaday types. No offense to them. Yeah, I think he. I think he's just a guy who uh, knew how to use his budget incredibly well at this point and stretch it and understand how if seventy five percent of the movie is. Uh, intellectual conversations you could really make the the remaining 25 percent sing in terms of visual effects but like the idea that he just wrote this was the sentence something like the devil is buried under a los angeles church and graduate students come to fight him right period <laughs> and they were like yeah three million dollars someone print out the check I'll, I'll i'll have it ready for you you know it's not like that log line isn't cool i want to hear more sure but i would probably want to hear more 
you, you don't think Universal's not signing up on, on that pitch, you know? Well, graduate students, I assume, is where many of an executive <laughs> would be like, whoa, 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 yes. whoa graduate students? Uh, come on. Yeah. We can't, we can't zazz that up. But that's right. That's the big thing is that Alive has a distribution deal with uh, Universal and Universal is going to handle TV and home video. So it's like the movie has a security net, but he doesn't have to get the approval of Universal. He doesn't have to go through that bureaucracy. He's left to his own devices. Um, so Alive Entertainment, this is the, no, sorry, Alive Films. I'm sorry. Apology accepted. What are, what are some other, like, isn't... They did Kiss of the Spider Koyana Woman. Yeah, oh, they did snaps. Alan Rudolph's films for a while. Right. I think right. they did Kiss the Spider Woman, obviously. Betty Blue. So like, they were big in the art house, like 80s art house stuff for a little right. while there. But, I mean, you know, the, the deal falls apart eventually. I don't know if you want to get into that this podcast or not. But uh, Right. He gets, he gets up to the second film, right? They Live is the second out of what was supposed to be four. And then, yes. right. The other two, the other two could have been El Diablo. There's, he had some film about his uh, fucking <laughs> unmade masterpiece. Yeah. Every single time it's El Diablo. Right. And then he, the other pitches were apparently something about Vietnam helicopter pilots, which I don't know how you do that on a $3 million budget. <laughs> no. <laughs> something called, let me find this here. Cause is that victory out of time? Yes. Or, that's one. Yeah. All anyone ever, ever knows about, about it. Apparently in a tweet in 2011, he put out something, someone asked him about it. He says like, he just tweeted back different take on time travel. So it would have been a different take on time travel, apparently. I, I will say I would not be looking in the late 80s to make a time traveling Vietnam helicopter movie <laughs> when the Twilight Zone is in the recent memory. Like, I, I understand why. Two, I think there was two different movies, but yes, I understand. I understand. I'm just saying that's happened in 1983. If I was a studio, I would go, John, get this the fuck out of our office. <laughs> How dare you even say time travel Vietnam helicopter? Yeah. Well, also, time travel right after Back to the Future, you know, it's sort of... But I do feel like he's in this science-y mode. Like, he's very intrigued suddenly by, you know, breakthroughs in technology, right? And he, he's, and he likes combining that with more classic genre stuff of his youth. Like, that's, that's where a lot of this feels like. Right. This was like he was getting into theoretical physics, uh, physics and then decided to reverse engineer a movie around what interested him there. So it was like, can I take everything I'm interested in, the actual hard science of, of this shit and the theory, and then uh, marry it to Supernatural so that I can get it made? How do you just get into quantum physics? He's John Carpenter. How does he get into that's Fallout 76? weird. That is a weird thing to just be like, I'm a hobbyist of quantum physics. I mean, I don't know for sure, but it seems like maybe that was the 80s, what like chaos theory was to the 90s, where suddenly it was turning oh, up, okay. not just in Jurassic Park, but some other, you know, other popular bits of entertainment as well. Interesting. Okay. Look, he, he just wants to do his own research, Ben. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. He also was allowed to do, per this deal, a big budget studio film, like within 
the years of this deal, which was supposed to be Escape from L.A. Oh, which interesting. Is okay. An idea of how that gives you an idea of how long it actually took Escape from L.A. to happen. That like in the mid 80s, they're like, yes. Um, but anyway, Andre Blay is the uh, executive producer here, right? He's one of the, the live guys and he's like the king of VHS, I feel like. Yes. Uh, this is right. This is and Nick and uh, JJ, our researchers, gave us. It's funny to think about this because now we take home video for granted or whatever. Mm -hmm. But like, he's one of those guys who like went to Fox in 1977 and was like, can I buy the video rights to your movies? Like MASH, The French Connection, right? You're like, and they were like, what? Okay. Well, who fucking cares? (laughs) And he gave them like 300 grand, right? And like some royalties, obviously, or whatever. And made a fortune, <laughs> like right, right. you know, like. And a few years later, Fox bought him out because they were like, "You're a genius. Come run our video thing." But it's just like how Netflix, you know, discovered streaming video almost by accident, where they were like, "Yeah, I guess that could be an option. Let's put that on our website." You know, we're a DVD by mail company, but like, what if you could just like watch it on your laptop, and then like. Five years later, that's their entire model. And and similarly, Netflix had three years where literally everything was on their site and only their site. And they got all of it for like $300,000 combined. Um, And it fucked up uh, uh, consumer uh, expectations forever. It also also looked bad at first. I remember I was like, I don't want to watch this on streaming. This looks terrible. Bad quality. It did. It looked very bad. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, I mean, there's just I I feel like I brought this up before, but it is weird how little this is discussed. But the fact that Netflix's big foot in the door with streaming was they signed a deal with stars. And that meant Mm -hmm. that anything stars had the rights to Netflix had the rights to. And so all the studios that had made deals with stars did not have to renegotiate deals with Netflix. And Netflix for four years just had all every movie that stars had in rotation. Uh, and they and they made that deal for like what less than a million dollars. I mean, it was like insane. It was kind of like that that early bit of YouTube too, where everything yeah. was on YouTube. Everything that was a video was on YouTube until like yes, the copyright Dis- discovery. Disney had some first look deal with stars, so every Disney movie was on Netflix like immediately. It was bizarre, 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 bizarre. It fucked everything up forever. Um, you have to imagine Alive just crunched the numbers and was like, there is no way we put a video box with John Carpenter's name on it, on the shelves, and it does not make significantly more than $3 million. Like, this movie can underperform the box office, and it's a wash. The stats must have been there that this guy, like, works on home video, because obviously that's a lot of where Carpenter's, like, legendary status grew. Um, it makes sense for them to make this deal. Yeah, it's, it's funny you should bring up VHS. I, I remember, I think Alex Ross Perry is right, and, and, and you're, what you're reiterating here is, true that vhs is big for carpenter but i also feel like there's a second wave of appreciation especially for the the second tier films when widescreen home video becomes a thing because i think i know i watched this on vhs and and back whenever and and didn't really think that much of it but it's i think it's a revelation like a lot of carpenter films when you see it in widescreen i think the first time i really got i liked halloween but the first time i really got halloween was i think i watched on widescreen vhs back when that was briefly a thing before dvd Especially because Carpenter's like such a widescreen guy is like right. always shooting with like Panavision lenses or anamorphic or things like that. You're not getting the full idea. I don't know if you saw this in the dossier, David, but the other person who sold Carpenter on making this sort of deal was 
Charles Band, at that time the head of Empire Pictures, who had mm. released like Reanimator and stuff like that, and broke down from the model of like you keep this low enough, you make a profit on VHS, the film lives on there, all of that, you get whatever limited theatrical release. Charles Band later, I believe his next company is Full Moon Pictures, which then of course creates my beloved. Puppet Master franchise. <laughs> Charles Band, father of Puppet Masters. Oh, right. Have you watched any more Puppet Masters since we No, last the last time we Puppet recorded, Master? then I went on a trip for two weeks and I didn't watch anything. I'm up to three. I'm going to get through all the Puppet Masters. I swear I'm going to push through the Nazi ones. I don't, you can't push through them because I don't think they've stopped. No, I'm going <laughs> like, to keep pushing. Just, I'm going to okay. keep pushing. I'm going to keep pushing until they stop. What was the most recent revival? Well, there was uh, Littlest Reich written by uh, S. Craig Zoller. And then there is there's a spinoff Blade movie that's also about uh, Nazis, I think is like a boys in Brazil type. Where did the Nazis go movie? Right, right. Yeah. Littlest Reich was uh, is repellent. (laughs) I don't I mean, I don't know why uh, uh, it really is one of the most repellent movies I've seen to the point where. I know I need to check out Zoller's other films and people I respect love his stuff, but this was my first exposure to the mind of S. Craig Zoller. And I was like, I think I want out of the mind of S. Craig Zoller. I mean, is that not part of his appeal that he is? is. His films are repellent. You're trying to figure out how much he is repellent. I I will. Mm, uh, Yes. I mean, Keith, uh, yes, I agree. He, he is somewhat repellent or or whatever the stories he's telling are at least. Um, But uh, I imagine the ones that he directs, he did not direct the littlest Reich. Have, he did not. They, they they are you know visually enchanting enough uh, to at least uh, guide you through the repellents. Whereas I'm not. I don't want to speak ill of the Lilith Reich, but my guess is it is a little uh, more bare bones. That uh, maybe not. Maybe it's maybe it's an absolute aesthetic masterpiece. Like I couldn't tell. Uh, you. I mean, I think it was a bit of a budget pump up from the previous Nazi trilogy, which of course is Axis of Evil, Axis Rising, and Axis Termination. That's the other thing. Like, you're saying how repellent uh, Little Strike is, uh, Keith. The people who go deep on Puppet Master are like, oh, Little Strike, finally they lighten up here. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> like, the, th- yeah. the three Nazi movies before it were apparently worse. And then, right, the Blade one is called Blade the Iron Cross. They gotta get out of this fucking Nazi cul-de-sac. Get back to, like, the fucking puppets just being puppets. Uh, yeah, it's weird that Puppet Master is the one that got... Uh, taken over by Nazis. Like, that's not like an automatic, you're like, well, you know, I enjoy this movie, but I can just tell where this is going. It's definitely going to turn into a Nazi franchise. By the 21st century, it's just going to be all Nazi puppets all the time. All the time, yeah. I mean, I think the there's like the, the Toulon, the puppeteer is getting, like, he gets chased by Nazis in the first, like, there's a little bit, he was on the run from the Nazis. The Nazis were the bad guys. At some point, the puppets become Nazis. Anyway, this is an episode on Prince of Darkness. <laughs> yes, uh, but it, it is it's it is crucial not to talk about Puppet Master, but right to just acknowledge the sort of it, the boom of VHS that's happening at the time. Well, that's why I'm bringing this up because you have things like Puppet Master, which start around this time, where it's like a franchise that goes on for twelve entries and never gets released to theaters. Like Keith, you're you're a little older than me. Like, did you? I assume you didn't see Prince of Darkness in theaters, but like, did you see it? I don't know, you know, on home video, like more around when it came out or was it something you dug up later? I'm going to say probably like I had friends who hung out in the high school. We watched a lot of horror films, so it might have been in the mix at some point there. 
or possibly when I was working at a video store later in life. But uh, um, but I think the first time it really caught, you know, first time it really worked for me was when I watched it on, on, on DVD or Blu-ray or whatever mm. form I yeah. saw it in. This one is also so dark that I feel like the worse the transfer is you're mm-hmm. watching, the harder it is to process anything that is happening. Yeah, and it's just such a... It's not, I think, like, Sergio Leone movies are basically incomprehensible in pan and scan. I don't think yes. Carpenter's quite that, but you're not... There's so much atmosphere that you lose right. if, you're, if you're watching it in pan and scan. He's a guy who very consciously uses every single inch of the frame. Uh, and yeah, the more you're, you're cropping that, uh, the, the less you're under the spell of his move. You're going to lose, you know, half the maggots from a frame if you, if you, if you, if you crop this movie. Yeah, you're only going to get a few dozen bugs, not hundreds. Got so many <laughs> bugs. Um, yeah, uh, some other context on it. Right, so we're talking Halloween 3. Ho- he was, Carpenter was asked to make Halloween 4, um, which came out, I want to say, 88, which is, of course, the return of Michael Myers. Uh, 88, yes. He had no interest in going back to Myers, right? Like, he yes. would have kept doing them if they had kept them as anthology. Possibly, but yes, yeah. he very much sold the sequel rights to someone else and was kind of like, in 87, there's this interview in Starlog he gives where he's like, I am happy to be rid of Halloween. Like, right. I don't want, you know, if other people want to make money off of it, fine, but like, I don't want to be involved anymore. Uh, I don't know where that fatigue is coming from, but obviously it would be hard to keep topping yourself and he's, a, you know, he, he's got a lot of other ideas. Like, it, But it is too bad that Halloween 3... Which they just never should have called Halloween three. They should have just called it Halloween colon something, right? Like mm. Halloween colon the season. Like calling it Halloween three was a was an objectively stupid decision because that makes it sound like it's the third entry in a specific story. Like, I mean, can I throw out a theory? Do you think it would have worked had it been Halloween two? Maybe. I mean, yes, doing Halloween two doesn't help, of course, because right, like right. Then you like have you, set. You do the, the very of, literal starting right after sequel that gives people exactly what they think they want. And then to go like, never mind, it's just about different things that happen on this one night. And also you have Friday the 13th doing the numbered sequels. So it's right. like there's the expectation of like the mask killer will be back. No, I think it's in theory, you're, you might be right, but it's kind of unprecedented. I can't think of another film series that works that way. But maybe it would have been a huge breakthrough. Who knows? No, I mean, the the only example of anything that's even close to this is, like, when you get the fucking, like, Born Legacy thing where you're just like, can we make it without the star? Never mind, we're going back to the star. Where you make sort of a sideways sequel, but that's very much in the same continuity, in the same universe, sharing supporting characters, building on the legacy. This idea of just, like, it's a fucking whole new thing. Yeah, Halloween 3 actually takes place in a universe in which Halloween is a film that people watch on television. So it's, right. it's, it's not connected at all. Right. That's wild. But I I mean, I just remember hearing that as a kid and thinking that was so cool that like, oh, fuck, there's a right. movie that doesn't have Myers in it at all. He just took the idea of Halloween as like, that's the 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 fucking bucket that we're putting movies into. Ben, have you seen Halloween three? You haven't, I'm assuming. Um, I did a long time ago and I have not revisited. You know, it it I just know that you like hacker witches. It's sort of about hacker druids. So it's just kind of got sure, sure. what, you know, something that you might be intrigued by. That's also mm. like, you know, mm. microchips, oh. but also druids. Hold on. 
That sounds extremely my shit. Fuck. I don't want to spoil Halloween 3 too much, but I just want to tell you that the microchips are made out of Stonehenge. That's all. So (laughs) I'm going to actually, I have to go. (laughs) Um, The other thing that Carpenter was asked to do by ABC was to do a horror anthology series, I guess a sort of more extreme Twilight Zone thing. And I just want to read his quote because, Johnny, you're absolutely right when you say, They wanted me to commit to one hour every week for whatever I wanted to do, but it doesn't mean anything to me. Who wants to produce TV? It's brain damage time, man. It's tough. You have to come up with a new story every week. I don't want to work that hard. What yep. what what year was that? Like mid 80s? 87. 87. Yeah, because that was like when Amazing Stories and Alfred Hitchcock presents the anthology right. series were briefly a thing. Here's another uh Carpenter quote that is haunting to read today. Uh this is from uh, Starlog magazine. He said the studios aren't like they used to be. The executives really don't know much about movie making. In the old days, the moguls love making movies. Today that responsibility has shifted to the agents. The studio heads don't develop their own projects anymore. Instead, they call agents and ask, what have you got? What package can you put together? That quote's from 1987. (laughs) Mm, Packages. (laughs) Scary. Scary. Yeah, no, this is the thing. He's just sort of sniffing this stuff out, and he's like, you know, I don't want to be a content provider, essentially. Yeah. I'll package Plaisance and Wong and Parker. Yeah, exactly. Grad students. Cylinders of evil. Come on. (laughs) Alice Um, Cooper at the height of his fame. Dude, Alice Cooper in this movie, who he met at WrestleMania 3. That is how he casts Alice Cooper. They were hanging out. Uh, Alice Cooper apparently was part of a match between Jake the Snake and uh, Jake the Snake Roberts and the Honky Tonk Man. Of course. Carpenter was just there vibing, having fun at WrestleMania 3, enjoying a, you know, a, a professional wrestling entertainment package. And uh, he got backstage passes and he hung out with Alice and he was like, oh, this guy's cool. And he just put him in his movie. Right. Then Shep Gordon negotiated for him to write a song for it. I believe that's also how he met Roddy Piper. I think that's yeah. why hmm. Roddy Piper's in. Uh, and they use some of Alice Cooper's onstage devices for this movie. I think that's another way they kept the budget down. The impaling thing is apparently from his show. Right. Uh, which I don't necessarily yeah, because I, it's not like he invented impaling, but I guess I guess that particular the way the gag is executed it was was from his uh, stage show. And I think that I mean they're literally reusing the devices and stuff. Yeah. So, like, all good, but I just what's the closest? Is Blumhouse sort of the closest thing to this now, where it's just like with a few million dollars and a sort of basic concept, you can rub some sticks together and maybe you know have a hit on your hands, I guess. But like. Correct. And I feel like Blumhouse has a similar thing where they're just like, well, if this movie doesn't work, we'll like sell it to streaming. Like, what, what low risk? There's, there are buyers for this. Right. Whatever. But like the idea that he's just been like reading a lot of Scientific American and like is interested in particle physics all of a sudden right. and is like, yeah, I can, I can, I can make all this work. Right. How is this I, a movie? I don't know. Boldness. The particles are turn into Satan. Like, God is anti God. Right. I like it. I do too. To be clear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he's also with this, I feel like he's kind of going against the trend of horror in the 70s and 80s where it's like not, there's no teens, there's no like hot co-eds or, you know, like, you know, all these movies that are about like where it's like, not only are they teen-ish or in their early 20s, but like everyone in those movies is like a type. Like there's a jock yeah. and there's a skater and there's a band geek or whatever. 
And this is just like about a bunch of grownups, you know, kind of doing some research who are very sort of nondescript in a, in a good way. I mean, it feels like the the lead student having that fucking mustache is a real statement in that way, too. Yes. <laughs> yeah. This is an adult. That's such a fucking honking stash. It's wild. It's it's bordering on Brimley, but but the fact that it's so yeah. robust in color. Yeah. Why, um. Uh, my friend Josh Rothcock wrote about this movie uh, for a, a site called Josh. Musings. Yeah, yeah, uh, great guy. Uh, and he his whole take on it was basically this is his uh, the closest he came to to an, um, a inserting himself into a film that character like sort of this mustachioed because uh, he shot at, shot at USC where he went to school and and there's there's that element to it as well. Uh, and it's not the most flattering depiction if it is kind of a uh, you know autobiographical because it's, he's he's kind of a jerk and he gets called out on being a sexist jerk which was which was a in touch I wasn't necessarily expecting in, in this film you know a film from this era not not specific details but they do seem similar in temperament mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Carpenter yeah. in this character yeah Carpenter's also good about giving you know women uh, to, letting them push back against sexist <laughs> sexist jerks which was uh, cool to see. Right. I mean, that's another you talk about him going against the trends of horror movies at this time. The one sex scene happens in like the first 10 minutes and they cut over it. Mm -hmm. This is another movie also where I feel like the opening credits don't end until like minute 10. They keep getting interrupted by scenes. Right. We failed to um, comment on this in the fog episode, which is one of my favorite elements of the fog, is that you keep on thinking the opening credits are over and and then they still go on block in right, right. yeah, yeah this, right I, well, I love in that fog approach. they're just superimposed over the image but there'll be like a minute in between each credit so you forget they're still happening it's the slow seeping feeling with this it's the classic carpenter like white text on black so you keep on thinking they're done and then there'll be another insert of uh opening credits it does it it does lend an ominous vibe especially because so of his so many of his themes his own scores are so relentless they're just sort of one droning pattern happening over and over and over again the fact that the credits also don't stop it does build this dread it's like we haven't even, we haven't even started yet you know we, right. the, the, what's the real movie is still coming and there's gonna be this great really freaky motif of this dream you can't shake that's sort of like being projected into your head and i don't know I right. like I, yes great atmosphere especially since yes this is a slow start but i think slow start horror is usually my preferred approach. That's, oh, same here. Same here. Yeah, I like a sort of like, even if you're going to take an hour to really get to the bananas stuff and then, you know, probably have a pretty wild last half hour, right? You mm-hmm. know, like, that's 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 cool. As long as I'm, you know, engaged, like, uh, by the first hour, yeah. Uh, versus sort of balls to the wall, thrills, thrills, thrills. You know, that can be fun, but... You know. I, I, I tend to agree with you. This... This movie is weirdly long by Carpenter standards in that it's an hour 45 rather than like 90 and out. Yeah, yeah. A lot, lot, uh, lot of theory to unpack with this one, I think. Though. Yes, yes. So we've got Victor Wong, like you said, uh, who he'd worked with in Big Trouble in Little China. And he just loves that this guy can like, I mean, I love the way this guy handles jargon. Like Me too. It's just like, he, he just seems very into it i guess like you know versus just that he's just like downloading information he does genuinely feel like a professor rather than an expository device like i feel like people either get tripped up on dialogue like this or they put too much mustard on it and make it too dramatic and he's just a guy 
who loves talking about this shit, has been talking about this shit every day for decades. And well, he and Playsons are both actors who you believe what they're saying. Like they can, yes. you know, they, they have the authority and conviction. And it's like, you know, you, you step back. It's like, this is absolute nonsense. Uh, but, you know, while, while they're talking, it's like, sure, the devil's in a jar in the basement. That, that's, that makes sense. Right. And Pleasant sells it more through the sort of like mad-eyed terror of everything. You know, the sort of severity of everything. Uh, uh, but yeah, I, I, I just, it's one kind of just like lets the stuff just sort of like roll off. I, is it embarrassing that the thing I know him best from is Three Ninjas? Obviously, I know he's in Big Trouble in Little China, but I didn't see and those Last in Emperor. Last Emperor. Right. I mean, but I didn't see those until later. Yeah. But like when I was a kid, I saw at least three Three Ninja movies. I think I fell off with. You didn't see uh, High Noon and Mega Mountain. Up. I never saw High Noon and Mega Mountain. That's the one with Hulk Hogan. Yeah, Knuckle Up is is the third one. I believe Knuckle Up is the third one, but Mega Mountain is the fourth. There's four. It's a tetralogy. <laughs> Correct. I guess I didn't realize that he started so later in life. I guess it isn't Dim Sum basically his first film of any of any note? Yes. Yeah, he was like um, sort of a local theater guy and doesn't, right, does not make it all the way to uh, movie work. I think he mostly did like San Francisco theater uh, until Dim Sum, which is right. That's 85. Right, and, right. and Wayne Wang was a, a like, San Francisco guy. It makes sense that he would have found him there. But yeah, he's, he's born in, in 27. 50s, yeah. yeah. Right. So he's he's almost 60 by the time he breaks out. And yeah, look, Jesus, like hit the ground running. Dim sum, you're the dragon, same year, right? Then following year, Big Trouble in Little China, Shanghai Surprise, which is a disaster, but a high profile disaster. Golden Child's a big hit. Year after that, Last Emperor, Prince of Darkness. Uh, then he does Eat a Bowl of Tea with Wang again. Tremors. And then, and then he fucking gets stuck in the Three Ninjas corridor. I do imagine if you asked the guy, he'd be like, Three Ninjas, once I got stuck there, I never got out. Right, because then you're the kindly Asian grandpa, right? And it's like, yeah, yeah. Mm. And he's in yeah. the, the widely beloved film Jade as well. Yes, it's yes. Mr. Wong and Jade, he is. Uh, yeah, there's also this, he, he died a day after September Did 11th. you read this? Yeah, it's Upon weird. learning of the events of September 11, 2001, Wong and his wife Rose spent the day trying to get news of Wong's sons who lived in New York City. They were unharmed. After Rose went to sleep, Wong stayed up to continue following the news. He died of a heart attack at some Aww. point during the morning of September 12, Fucking 2001. Weird. I mean, he was not a young man, but he's 74. He's still too young to be, you know. But yeah, literally, like, his heart was broken by 9-11. That sucks. Uh, I really Close. like him. That and I really like him in this. This is this is I feel like one of his most sort of you know meaty, interesting little roles. Yes, in in film. Um, I have seen The Last Emperor, which is a great movie, but I couldn't tell you like the actors in it almost. You know what I mean? Like, of course, I've never Chan, seen like, it. Yeah, it's it's good. It, it is good, but you know, it's a visual feast. I don't know, Keith. Are you anti Last Emperor? I feel like you know. You know, I have not seen that since I watched it on VHS, <laughs> so I can't really... Terrible format it. to see it. Yeah, sure, yeah. I liked it at the time. I've got the disc somewhere. I should dig it out and watch it one of these days. Now, can I say, I don't really understand Dennis Dunn's performance in this. And he, of course, is in uh, uh, Big Trouble. Uh, he shares most of credits for this run of years with Wong, where he's also in Year of the Dragon, Last Emperor. Uh, I, I like him a lot in Big Trouble. Um, I I don't know if it's just this character he's is so very bizarre. over the top. Is that he's is that your really problem? Broad, yeah, in a way that feels more in line with 
most horror film performances of the era, but I have found very refreshing that they are absent from the Carpenter films. Like, it it sort of feels like he's giving a Friday the 13th performance. Mm. Yeah, he's... he's 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 the irritant, I think, for most of the film. He's he's the irritant, and he's the irritant in a way that I feel like Carpenter usually has well-observed humans with somewhat recognizable behavior so that you get more invested in them. And he feels like the irritant in, like, a teen slasher movie where you're like, when are they going to fucking kill this guy, you know? Right. That's It's actually crazy that he doesn't die. He's one of the four survivors. But... Part of the problem is that so much of his screen time in the, you know, back half of the movie is where he's stuck in the closet and he just is sort of yelling like, oh, my God, she looks even crazier. (laughs) This is getting worse. And we like I've talked about the thing I think Carpenter does so well, which is like most people faced with true horror go silent. They go into shock. They don't scream and run away, you know? Um, and this is like the one character who kind of functions like, once again, just sort of like a dumb slasher movie character, which I love dumb slashers. Like, I don't mind this kind of performance in that. It just feels totally off from what every other actor is doing. No, I I don't disagree with that. I think that mostly the people he's cast here are sort of in line with what you're talking about where they're, you know, getting to basically play real people. Yeah. And they are not straying too far outside the lines of what, you know, like no one is sort of trying to steal the show with some kind of, you know, big character performance. But I guess because Walter's kind of the wisecracker. Right. He's like, he gets to pitch it up a little bit. I he's don't know. also so aggro, though. Like, I feel like he is so prickly where he's not like a fun wisecracker. Um, I bet you can guess who my favorite is. Hmm. Dirk Blocker. Yeah, I was about to say, it has to be Dirk Blocker, right? Just look and vibe alone. Yeah. My second guess was Peter Peter Jason as Dr. Leahy, a a, a Carpenter guy. Right. This is his first pairing with him before he then becomes a a stock company player for the next 10 plus years. Um, And, you know, Dirk Blocker, a long career, right? You know, we love him. But he's also like, this guy's a scientist. (laughs) Yeah, well, he's got me. That's what I like. You know, there is that kind of scientist, right? The kind of exactly. shirt scientist. That's what I like, that like, he's not a movie scientist. He's the real kind of scientist you meet where yeah. you're like, huh, I guess so. Uh, and Blocker was a cop in Starman, right? We just saw him in that. Uh, let me... Tri- yes, we did. We were just yeah. talking about it. Yes, he's a cop in Starman. Did he do another? Maybe not. Maybe he didn't do another Carpenter. No, I'm not seeing one. Obviously, everyone knows him from... Brooklyn Nine-Nine now, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah. He's uh he's he's a predictable Griffin fave. You're right. Yes. And then you have Lisa Blount, uh, who's coming off of Officer and a Gentleman. Yeah, who's right, you know, a name, I guess. You know, a close closer to a name for this kind of project. But she's also done a bunch of TV at sure. the time. And, you know, I guess she's been sort of bouncing around. I, I don't know that anyone that says I, I want to go see the new Lisa Blount movie though. Is it? It is a. Uh, it is a. It is a fairly anonymous cast after the first couple of names. It is, and, and, and you know, yeah, Susan Blanchard, who is mostly sort of a soap star. She'd done All My Children. Uh, she was the second Mary Martin on All My Children. I love. I, I do love mm. that in soaps yeah. where there's sort of like there's different actors who have 
their own distinct fans and like long sort of tenures on soap operas. But like Lisa Blount got a very, very meaningful, like promising star of tomorrow Golden Globe nomination for Officer and a Gentleman. She feels like the only person who was even like arguably kind of being tipped for stardom, even if she didn't become a big star. Why don't they do that anymore? They should do that. They should bring that. I know Pia Zadora killed it dead or whatever, but they should bring it back. That was the most fun award they had. They should bring that the fuck back. I mean, uh, I guess they, they should have just, the Globes anymore. Are they I was done? about to say, <laughs> I guess yeah, the Globes no, are dead. Yeah. yeah. Um, I also just want to mention uh, uh, Jesse Lawrence Ferguson, who plays Calder in this, uh, who, of course, uh, we recently covered as uh, Officer Self-Hatred in Boys in the Hood. Right. He's the the the, the angry racist black officer uh yeah he's got a good death in this movie i got he does. one of the yeah. most impactful he's the you know like the watching someone kill themselves even in a shitty movie like the happening which i know some people i was thinking the alleges. same thing yeah, I, yeah, yeah. that the the fucking self-harm sequences in that movie are very effective um he's got a he's also got a lot of good post-death uh screen time you know yeah, yeah. that must be so fucking annoying yeah, <laughs> you just is like lie there, don't move, like all that. God, it must be such a pain in the ass. So yeah, all right, look, there's a quantum physicist played by mm-hmm. Victor Wong, just to give mm-hmm. you know, and there's a Catholic priest played by Donald Pleasant, who we do not know the name. He's just the priest, right? right. He doesn't have a name. Yeah, no, his character name is Priest. Yes, correct. And he's like, uh, yeah, you know. Come check out this uh, this monastery in L.A. where I guess the monks used to talk to each other through dreams. There's a mere, mere mysterious cylinder. Let's see what's going on. My answer to that would be uh, no, absolutely no, not. I won't no. be coming. <laughs> I I'll be uh, getting myself a nice meal and going to bed safe and warm. <laughs> I'm still not entirely sure how this becomes a scientific study. And the combines like right. you know Who's linguists and and, and, right. and physicists and or what they're they're hoping to prove what the outcome's supposed to be here, um, but whatever I, I would just go with it. It's 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 so fun. You have this abrupt heart opening with uh what is his title, uh Pleasance's superior, the old man who dies with the little chest and the and his journal. Uh yeah, I don't know his title. Uh, whatever he's you know, uh, chief monk. I don't know. Chief Monk. I don't know. But that sort of starts the 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 spiral, right? Uh for Pleasance. Digging into what exactly is going on here. Um just I'm a fucking I'm a fucking moron. The the notion here is that they have been preserving this canister because they thought it was holy. I think so. It's been there since the 15th century, so which is probably as old as anything, right. uh, you know, a Catholic church can be in Los Angeles, in at least. America. Yes. Right. It, How it got there, I'm not sure we ever hear though. There's right? the scene with Wong where he's like kind of outraged at the fact that they were not told what they were protecting and why. I I just I am always drawn to that premise, which is essentially. There's this thing that's mysterious that's been there a long time. We should check it out. And then realizing at some point, oh, they were trying to, you know, keep it locked sure. away. Like, you know, sure. you know, this sort of flip where it's like, oh, I understand. We weren't supposed to find it. We were supposed to never find it. That's why it's right. hidden. 
And and yeah. he's like angry that he was it was not explained to him that they were not given directions and understanding of everything. But Wong's sort of defense is like they didn't have the technology to make sense of it. They were trying to make sense in theological ways of what we can now discern with hard data, which is that God exists, but in a mirror universe. And we're in the universe where we got Satan in a canister. I think so. That, that, I think that's correct. The anti-god, right? The anti-god. I mean, anti-god's a great term. Uh, uh, right. A much better term than devil. And I like devil. I like Satan. That's fine. But anti-god, you know. Anti-god. I love de- I love the devil. I love Satan. Those okay. are all great. But yeah, yeah. I agree. <laughs> Not too <laughs> loudly. Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry. Um, but right. They're part of a monastery called the Brotherhood of Sleep that is based around communal dreaming. Yeah, pretty cool. But again, that's where I'm like, yeah, no, thank you. I'm not coming. Yeah. Like, I won't. It's like, well, what's the deal with the, the monastery that it's in? Ah, apparently, like, the monks used to talk to each other in dreams. I'm like, okay, well, that sounds creepy. So I won't yeah. be investigating their cylinder under any circumstances. I, I love sleeping. It is my respite from the living. I don't want to share nightmares with other people. Um, and yes, yeah, so, right. It's like, if, if, if it's, the, it's the sort of like, what if faith and science or two halves of one thing, right? Like, rather than disparate things. So, yes, to Christians, yes, maybe there's God and Satan, but just like, you know, how in science there's, like, matter and antimatter. What if there's, you know, God and anti-God, right? right? That's sort of the idea is, like, there is a binding force that is behind the construction of our reality uh, on a cellular level, but all matter has antimatter, and the antimatter wants to destroy everything. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a very Quatermass thing too. It's like, what if you figured out the secret of the universe and it was awful? It and, sucks, and, you know. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and we were doomed. But hey, at least you figured it out. Uh, absolutely, the ultimate truth is essentially that uh, you know uh, humanity wants will be wiped out in a plague. The thing in this canister is not going to come out and be like, "Hey, I've got all the answers for you." It's just gonna, you know, uh, right? Get, Turn you into zombies you. or whatever. Turning into zombies for some reason, right? We never really figured out what the game plan is, Sarah. Do we? No, I mean, there's just like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the point of the bugs or the zombification or the um the uh possessed homeless people gathering like is except to bring about the you know this guy, the anti-god coming out of the canister, right? Like coming out of the mirror or whatever. Well, mm-hmm. sure. But that's like this is a big recurring Carpenter thing is he is just like fascinated by the notion of pure evil that has no motivation, no explanation, no clear game plan, whether it's a fucking car or a dude in a Shatner mask or a giant tuba goo. It's just like there is fundamental evil that exists. And if you let it loose, it will cause chaos. These, these forces that cannot be reasoned with in any way. And this is a movie where there's, as you said, Griffin, a lot of chat a lot of Pleasance and Wong, especially kind of holding forth on quantum physics and matters right. of faith and kind of just... It's a, a lot of chat. A lot it's of chat. like a lot. Well, there's like, one line about I was, how... I was going to say, there's one line about how they were on a BBC series where they debated each other, and it kind of feels like this is an, another installment of that series up to a certain oh, point. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which, uh, all of which I like both in theory and in practice. I just think perhaps... I needed to have three cups of coffee before watching this. <laughs> three? 
three. I don't know. You might be pretty jacked up by by the time Satan is appearing. But yes, okay. Right. So Pleasance goes to Wong almost immediately, right? He senses something's wrong. Wong recruits all of his students. It does not tell them what they're doing. No. Why they're going to an ancient church basement. It doesn't give them a lot of choice either. It's like, this is no. your after credit assignment that's mandatory. Please show up. Right. It doesn't give them a lot of choice. <laughs> show up uh, at midnight. Everyone does it. Acknowledges the fact that they don't know what's going on. They are not that worried about it. They're more annoyed than anything else. It's like, oh, Very one of these things. Yeah. And and by the way, and no one's really keeping an eye on it. That, that I say, was their biggest, you know, they should be noticing by the time the liquid is pooling on the ceiling or whatever, right? Like, I feel like that is happening for a while before anyone really checks in. I get Pleasance just wanting to be like, okay, time for some answers. Let's get to work. I'm not idly uh, guarding this thing anymore. But also, when your whole life has been devoted to the idea that your monastery guards this thing, maybe make sure one person is guarding it. Right. Someone just should have eyes on it. Instead, they have like computers. Right. Computers that are like running sort of formulas on the the many kind of encrypted books and stuff like that. And that's great. That's great. Do that work, but get one oh, PA man. to do Firewatch on on the evil tube. Ben, you liked the the old computers spitting out yeah. numbers. Oh man, it fucking ruled. Come on, that shit was yeah, great. No, no, I'm I'm well, not surprised. What's the I live, I live, I live, I live, I live, I live. That shit's pretty cool. It's that's creepy. Once I get that first dream, I'm out. I I know I'm being you know I'm repeating myself here, but the you know that. It's such a thing in scary movies involving the supernatural where people love to be like, it's just a dream. You know, they love to dismiss dreams. Yes. Never dismiss dreams if you're dealing with the supernatural. Dreams are very important. Dreams are, dreams are warnings. I like this movie, but I just want to say I think that's a, a, a slight issue with it where I feel like Carpenter is usually very, very good at justifying why people stay or how they behave and you don't have people succumbing to stupid behavior. But part of the idea that this is this sort of like uh, faith versus science debate, you have these hard science people uh, who are sticking around when shit's getting really bad as opposed to being like driven by the need to get answers to these things because it's just like this is some fucking assignment we don't care about. I am with you where like at the first sign of anything going gooey, I'm walking out of there. I'm going to a sandwich shop. I'm getting it to go. I'm sitting in a park. I'm never going back to that block Crip, ever again. When we talked about Prometheus, say, you know, we've had these conversations now where we're like, look, there's plenty of evidence that people, you know, do kind of ignore things in the face of danger. And there's a whole obvious sort of HIV metaphor at work in Prince of Darkness, right. obviously, like in any 80s movie where a virus is spreading or what, right? Like it's sort of hard to ignore. And so, yeah, it's sort of like, right, life is going on, even though, like, slowly they're getting picked off in this very uh, grisly way. This is true. It also kind of establishes you can't leave. I guess they don't, they don't know that the one guy gets uh, impaled by Alice Cooper's bicycle or whatever. Mm. Um, but no. It, the movie at least lets us know that, that leaving is not really an option for them. Sure. It's not. Um, if they ever tried, it's true. Only one of them really tries. But, um, yeah. The the anti god the the liquid, you know, getting squirted, is very simple and very effective and very unsettling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's an effect that costs you ten bucks, and I, you know, am sort of like squirming in my seat the second I see it. Right, it's, it's someone with a super soaker off camera. Just yeah, 
Uh, I mean, the the other effect that is very simple and very effective is the the goo pooling on the ceiling. Right. The kind of reverse, like, yeah, yeah. That that's so cool. That's always good. Liquid is great. Right. Shoot and liquid then you get at any speed yeah. in any direction. Yeah. That that horrifying. That wet evil, Ben Hosley's new favorite subgenre. Um, that dummy where the the green liquid is just like projectile shooting out of the eye sockets and mouth is also very effective. Um, so to give you, yeah, some idea, right? Dean Cundy obviously had worked with him on Big Trouble in Little China. They had reunited, mm-hmm. um, but he doesn't hire him here because he says he's too expensive, and he was making Hoover Frame Roger Rabbit, mm-hmm. and basically Carpenter's like. He costs too much. I helped price Dean out of my own category is how he puts it. He promotes Gary Kibbe, who is his guy for the rest of his career, pretty much. Hundy starts being the guy you hire if you go, we want to do something really challenging that no one's ever done before. And he's going to be paid handsomely to do that, whereas Carpenter is getting smaller in his movies. Right. Carpenter, he can't get the A-team makeup guys anymore either. He, you know, he's sort of cutting corners on that. But it's good. Like, it works. He knows Mm -hmm. what he's doing. Yeah, it looks good. I think in a blind taste test, I could tell. I would. I would might guess that Cundy shot this because it has that kind of you know slick down, wet uh, uh, you know a pavement kind of look to it, and the way he lights the you know the night and exteriors. It, it, it's very much like a Cundy Cundy film. Gary Kibbe, I hope I'm saying his name right, uh, had been like camera operator on Big Troll. My guess is he was kind of like ready mm. to step up. Right, he had worked with Cundy. He kind of you know understood the vibes. Um, but yeah, it's just, I, you know, it's just, this movie looks very, very slick and impressive for the budget it's at. And it's a boring observation about Carpenter, but you know, the man could stretch a dollar. And at this point he could do it better pretty much than anyone else. He'd, he, you know, gone to the bigger budgets, he's coming back and he knows he's not really losing a step. It's, it's you know, I kind of wish he had done four of these instead of two because the two he did yeah. are good. Yeah. And then him going back to, you know, memoirs of an invisible man. Look, I haven't seen it yet, but I, no one has come to me with, you know, I have a defense of in memoirs of an invisible man. Like no one's got, I've not heard yet. one. I've not heard what Lex G might be the only person who has like a strongly, I'm just guessing. I don't even know that for a fact. Um, it's, it's rough. It's a rough set. I, I find even, you know, later, weaker Carpenter films uh, pretty easy to watch. But Memoirs of Invisible Man is, is, is it's a, it, well, you'll get to it, but it's, it's a. Yeah. But it's, it's the one no one sticks up for, basically. It's just sensibilities that don't go together. And Carpenter very much doing it in work for hire mode, which is not his best, you know, way to be. Look, I mean, we have a, a, a great guest for that episode, and I'm looking forward to doing it, but I should also forewarn. That that guest was like, I'd really like to be on a carpenter. And we're like, hey, if you want to be on a carpenter that badly, how about you do memoirs of Invisible Man? <laughs> no, no, like, no, we, it didn't even go that way. It was uh, he was like, I'd love to d- do an episode of Carpenter. Here are like the five movies I think you know that I remember well. And I was like, you fool! You said you memoirs fool. of an Invisible Man. You said <laughs> right. four good ones, and you said, guess who isn't saying memoirs? Anyone else? You Absolutely. Got memoirs. Uh, yeah. Can I call another interesting figure who we have not mentioned yet uh, at this point in the miniseries, I believe, but Larry Franco, who gets like the the first uh, title card in this whole movie, right? I think is a Larry Franco production. Um, he is a producer on this. He started as producer, Escape from New York, Starman, Big Trouble, uh, Prince of Darkness, up until they live. He was also the first assistant director going yep. back to Elvis, The Fog. Uh, he was married to... Jill Russell, sister of Kurt Russell, 
Mm-hmm. And it's then true. after this, or I'm uh, sorry, They Live is his last assistant director movie. Um, and then he just becomes a fucking mega producer. And he does yeah, well, he like Mars Batman Attacks, Begins, right? Mars Attacks, right, Jurassic right, Park right. 3, Hulk, um, Anonymous, White House. David, he even produced your own The Nutcracker in the Four Realms. Right. Yeah, he did do that. Wow. We, we collabed on that one. Sleepy Hollow, Jumanji, The Rocketeer, Batman Returns. Uh, he is a consulting producer on Jungle Cruise. Um, but just we're bringing up Jungle Cruise again somehow. We Jungle Cruise. You can't it's not a bad cruise. track record, really. I don't like those later. I, I, no, I, I take that back. I, White House Down is like the only Roland Emmerich film I do like, but but you know, some some, some good titles in there. It seems like he had a uh, he did 2012 and Anonymous as well, so he had like a run with Emmerich, I guess. And right, and obviously, yeah, he's got Jurassic Park three and Batman. He he's did got three Burtons, yeah. I don't know how these things work, but yeah, he, I, yeah, it's funny. He's, and he's uncredited in Apocalypse Now as a soldier clinging to helicopter. So he was a a second AD on that as well. Yeah. It is funny uh, how people sort of rise to being a, I want to be a producer. That sounds fun, Griff. You just like take a bunch of meetings and then you're a millionaire. Do not want to be a producer. No, I definitely don't. It's really annoying, right? Like you have to do all this bullshit deal with all these egotistical jerks yeah anyway um uh white house down is good prince of darkness is good prince of darkness so okay to go through you know to continue the plot sure cylinder starts dripping Mm -hmm. susan upwards uh stripping upwards wrong direction susan played by ann howard she's the first to go and she starts you know killing other people off there's a mass of homeless people who surround the building to stop anyone escaping mm-hmm. uh, standing there like zombies. I don't know why anyone's not like calling the cops. I guess it's the middle of the night, right? It's all happening in one night. And this seems like a, a pretty abandoned corner of Los Angeles too. Mm-hmm. Um, and the survivors are all getting a weird dream. That is, I think one of Carpenter's like most disturbing and profound images, like the way it's presented, the weird kind of VHS creepiness of it, the figure in the doorway, the weird, you know, stilted uh, uh, dialogue you're hearing. It's mm-hmm. my background. It's just the kind of, it's it's the kind of creepy that really, really pushes my button. Do you know how they got that? They achieved that effect. How? He just he just shot a television. Like I think he was playing a VHS recording and and then shot the television playing it, which is works great. Yeah, just, he sh- he shot a TV on film, which I have talked about numerous times. How I think we lost something when screens became HD because you used to be able to do interesting things with the differing picture quality in mm-hmm, movies. Right. People watching surveillance cameras and things like that. Uh, but yeah, I think he filmed this on video, put it on a TV, filmed the TV on film. Uh. It's cool. This is not a dream, of course. It is. They're dreaming, but it is not a dream. It's a message from the year 1999. It's the same way, like, the ring really gets me. Just that sort of notion of, like, fairly mundane images belying utter creepiness. Well, I think a big part of it is, I mean, we're talking yeah, about... Hidden, like, the Hanukkah movie, you know, like that, yeah. But, Keith, you were you were saying how, like, this was a movie you didn't really appreciate until you saw it in widescreen. You saw it in, like, a right. good enough resolution. There is something creepy, and I did. I do think this is a reason why 
horror and comedy played better on VHS for a long time, right? Like the movies that had like huge VHS second lives tended to be in those two genres because a comedy is like broad, it's verbal, you know, you're not losing a lot in translation perhaps. And with VHS and horror, I think some of the abstraction that happened in the limitations of the format and the loss of detail lended this otherworldliness to movies. You know, its ability or inability rather to like fully showcase fine detail and shadows and things like that. You get these weird abstracted images like this, like the ring, where something that's creepy about it is that you can't see what's happening very clearly. I can buy that. Yeah. I'll have to think about that for a while, but that, that, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, helps you fill in the gaps with your imagination, freak yourself yeah. out even more, maybe. You yeah. Know, I can see that. It's crazy to think that we watch stuff on VHS. No, I think it's madness to go back to it, though. I keep thinking of that scene in, in uh, While We're Young where, where they watched uh, The Howling on VHS. Like, you, you don't have to do that. Look, I mean, this is how <laughs> Alex, fucking Alex does it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know. He was evangelizing. I have so much nostalgia for the VHS era. I worked at a video store. Like, yeah. it gives me like a Proustian tingle to handle a VHS tape, but no, I'm going to watch a Blu ray. <laughs> no, no way I'm watching VHS if I don't have to. <laughs> Someone in the Reddit, I think, posted a picture of like their sort of stack of Carpenter VHSs. And, you know, they're all a little worn and it's those cardboard sleeves. And I like I looked upon that with great nostalgia and owning Carpenter VHS is a perfect, you know, I, I'm sure a great match of. But come on, I, 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 I whatever. I can't go that far to, to actually want to watch it in that format. It's it's that thing like. When when the Sunshine Theater in New York, R.I.P., had their every, every weekend midnight movie, right? Every weekend there was a Friday, Saturday midnight movie that was some revival thing. And it would always be a print. And you would go there and it would be a grab bag as to what quality the print was in. Because they were not dealing with like newly remastered, newly struck prints. And sometimes you would get something that was just like beaten to hell. And it's not like that improves the movie, but it does give you a certain specific vibe, you know? And it is the difference between going to a rep screening where the vibe is, oh, fuck, this print has been in, like, someone's basement since this movie was in first-run theaters 40 years ago versus, like, someone took time and care and effort to make this look as good as it did when it came out. I always prefer to see the accurate representation, but sometimes there's a nice vibe given by watching something in a weird form. Yeah, I had a, the reverse experience exactly once. We did the screening where um, uh, where Alex Winter came uh, to, uh, sure. and we watched. They screened Death Wish three, mm-hmm. and it was a like pristine print. Like maybe it had been screened once when it was first released. It was it was the most amazing uh, experience. I mean, it's it's you know obviously it's a not the prettiest movie in very many you know in ways both visual and thematic, but it was strange to it was like a time machine. Yeah, I mean, anytime I I feel like I go to a fucking rep theater and a print starts and it's that good, I feel like I've won the lottery. Mm. But there's certain movies you would want to see in a grainy, grimy, like, you know, this got played a hundred times. Like Death Wish know, 3. Print, right. <laughs> you know, just... Probably Death Wish Free, for example. I mean, I watched the Fort Griff. Do you have the 4K? I assume it's one of the Shout Factories. I can't remember. I do. But, yeah, I have, I have that. Yeah. And I want to listen to the commentary. This, you know, those 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 packages are all very well done. Yeah, the commentary is great. I mean, it it is in some ways awful because Carpenter is not he does not want to give you a whole lot about his movies, but it's basically uh, P 
Peter Jason remembering the plot of the movie better than Carpenter does. Like Carpenter's like, I don't know, you know, something happens here, and he's like, No, what happens is <laughs> they, they go to this room and look at this book, and then you know, it's 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 fun. The man made a lot of movies. Okay, you can't keep it all straight. And this is the one, I guess, that never got revisited. No one ever tried to remake it. No one no. turned it into a video game. No. I'm sure that there are horror conventions that celebrate it. But you know what I mean? Like, this is not the one with as long a tail. So he probably does not think about it as much. Yeah, I, I wonder where this sort of sits in his personal rankings, especially just because I feel like increasingly, uh, since we've started this miniseries, I've been hearing people say, like, you haven't watched that yet? That's like secretly the best one. Or that's like sure. the, the masterpiece that no one talks about. Like, I feel like it's being reclaimed and put towards the top of the pile for him. Well, when Vulture did a ranking of John Carpenter films written by, oh, who does that? Who did that? Oh, yeah, me. Um, oh, I believe I put it. Let's see. It, I'm fairly, checking now. Number 12. So above okay. Elvis but below Christine and Starman, which I think if I do it again, maybe I put it above Christine at least. I would notch it above those two. I would have it below the fog, which you have above it, you know, and escape from New York, big trouble. You know, yeah, I would have it below pretty much everything else you have it below. But yeah, I think I would put it over um, Christine and Starman, which are both movies I like a lot, mm -hmm. but I guess this is just more specific. There's more, is, this is a more of a Carpenter film. It is more of a Carpenter film. And Christina Starman are really good versions of movies I can get elsewhere. I don't know where else sure. I'm getting Prince of Darkness. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. That That's well said. I like seeing Carpenter's take on a Stephen King. I like seeing Carpenter's take on a more, you know, family E.T. type, you know, but like, yeah, what the hell? Where did this come from? Like, it's it's wonderful. I don't even know how you remake it in the sense that, is you know, it has a premise, but it's not one that, is, you know, I don't know how you re reboot it or rethink it. It's just, you kind of have to do Satan is a jar in a basement, which is, uh, I think you only get to do that once, really. Yeah, you, every filmmaker gets one Satan in a jar in a basement movie. <laughs> Satan in a jar. That sounds like some weird folk song. <laughs> like someone plays on a banjo. Absolutely. Satan in a jar. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, someone will now try to remake it now that we have spoken this into existence. I can only imagine, right? Mm -hmm. Like it'll be announced five minutes from now that, you know, uh, Warner Brothers is going to do a Prince of Darkness movie and a spinoff TV show on HBO Max. And it'll buffer five times when you try and watch it. I absolutely can't wait. <laughs> I can see this being an awful miniseries, like something that's like 10 episodes. Oh, <laughs> the jar the doesn't plot. even open for the first <laughs> yeah. three. Keith, oh, it, the, the cosmic sigh that cost me. Oh. I like I like the Mike Flanagan shows, right? And those are slow. You know, the, the, new, one, the new one's good, too. Flanagan's good. I can't wait to watch the new one. With, uh, for Midnight Mass, right? That's what it's called. Um but I did, you know, read a review today with like, yeah, you know, you don't really know what's going on until episode four. And I was like, I can't believe that we're allowed to get away with this. You know what I mean? Even when it's good. I reviewed that. And, and the, the please do not spoil these details list is hilarious because I won't spoil it. But it's like the first item is please do not, do not spoil the basic premise of the show. <laughs> right. Don't reveal the title. Uh, you know what I really like? I like when Mike Flanagan makes movies. Well, I do too. Uh, and no I like disrespect movies. to his TV shows, but movies are fucking cool. Yeah, movies are cool, but the man has made a fair amount of movies in the last ten years. So you know, you know, at least he pumps them out. 
No, he I I he is one of those people I do not understand the how he space time yeah. dynamics of play that allow him to make this much stuff, especially because his stuff is long and intricate. Long, intricate, and largely good. Yeah. 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 Not easy. Um, but uh anyway, I do need to watch it. But it's good, Keith. You like yep. um, very, very, very much recommend it. Past. I'm a Hamish Linklater fan. Yeah, it is a revelatory Hamish Linklater performance. Like I've seen, I've always liked him, but this is I mean, everyone's everyone's good. It's a good cast. You, you know, his, his rep players are good, and and uh, Zach Gelford from Friday Night Lights is it's a nice part for him. But but Linklater is uh, amazing in this. In this, uh, I love him. I am such a New Adventures of Old Christine was like the best assemblage of acting talent, you know, in a sitcom. Almost by mistake in the twenty well, first okay, century. Wait. Dreyfus, Sykes, Linklater. Who else was on that show? Clark Gregg is the other big one. Oh, um, obviously, yes, yes. Sorry, Emily Rutherford, who I think is really funny, and Trisha Kelly, who's been around. But like, it's really those four. Where it's sort of like, how did they get away with just like these? They're they're all full time anyway. Anyway, but Linklater is the wildest one because he plays kind of a you know doofus on that show he's her like dumb bro- you know not dumb but like he's her sort of layabout brother and then like i remember seeing him on stage a few years later and i was like oh that was like against type i'm right. realizing he's like this guy more plays intellectual nerdy. right yeah intellectual types like who wear a scarf and like kind of you know maybe are authority figures or something like that but then right and anyway i like hamish linklater mm. Come on the show, Hamish Linklater. He'd be good in the Prince of Darkness remake, right? Whatever, in whatever part, he could do the place. Yeah, he, he could. He could play the priest. Yeah. So okay, so yeah, the disease starts spreading. They start killing each other. I don't know what's what's there for us to talk about. Like, I feel like it's more like specific little death set pieces at this point, and like makeup jobs and things like that. It becomes kind of a zombie version of Assault on Precinct 13, which was, was itself kind of a zombie movie already. Right. I, I'm, I'm, I, no, I just have to uh, pull this up. You just saying, David, like, I don't know, there's this thing in the basement that kills people. I don't know. What is there to say? Right. Um, th- there was a, uh, a Reddit post recently on the, on the blank check subreddit that was, um, uh, fuck, let me find this. They they were writing parodies of the way you summarize movies exasperatedly. Uh, yeah, can, right. can I can I read, read a couple of these? Because <laughs> they're they're really good. Uh, uh, okay, so this was easy to remember. CPL. Uh, I don't know. A kid keeps seeing scary ghosts until a psychiatrist tells him they aren't scary. Not a lot happens really. <laughs> That's David does the sixth sense. Here's another one. Guy doesn't remember things. Wife. Guy doesn't remember thing. Wife is dead. He's got tattoos. I think they're characters from the Matrix. And I don't know. Shit's all backwards. <laughs> and then that was a regret popular 9970. These are really well. Like you could hear your voice in these. The third and final one, once again, from Easy to Remember CPL. I mean, a guy runs a bar and his ex-girlfriend shows up. He's kind of into her, and I guess not because he runs off with her current guy. Some Nazis show up too. I mean, I don't know. What do you want from me? <laughs> Wait, 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 wait. What is that one? I'm sorry. Casablanca. Casablanca. <laughs> I was like trying to think of shows, uh, movies we've covered. No, the first two are, and then the third one. But the, the, the ending yes. line of, I don't know, what do you want from me? 
I, I do often say, what do you want from me? What do people want from me? I guess they want an entertaining show that gets the into world. the details of their they movies. They want the world. Yeah. They want the, they want the world from me. No, I just, I can't organize the back half of this movie in my brain very well. I can't Because yeah. it's kind of just like disconnected little set pieces, which is fine. Well, it's also, it, it's sort of him going like Boonwell and just giving you fucking mm-hmm. nightmares. Yeah. And the right, and the idea, of course, is that the sort of you know uh, reality versus dream line is getting blurred anyway. Like where you know yeah. it's sort of hard to tell like what what is going on. And, right. What do you want it, from it, me? There's what do you you know what do you want from me? <laughs> um, I, have a, I have a Carpenter quote that's kind of the equivalent of what do you want from me? It's Please, I'm speaking to the Pittsburgh Post Gazette. Uh, this is Pittsburgh Post Gazette, which which frames it in such a way as like. These days, uh, at 40, he's a happy man. <laughs> Despite after walking away from the studio system, which I don't, Carpenter was never a happy man. No, right? absolutely uh, never. The man, the man a, is not uh, happy. It's an audience participation film. It's very scary. I will guarantee you one thing, however, it will get bad reviews. It's too difficult for critics to support something like Prince of Darkness. They are loath to praise a horror film, but I always get bad reviews for my films. I've learned to live with it. He is not wrong, which is unfortunate fortunate like it is true yeah it did get bad reviews the, these 80s movies where he's like pumping out gold and people were like eh, i don't know john like it's a little campy or it's a little like derivative or you know it's a little cheesy it's i don't know what critics wanted from genre movies I like any yeah. and I, look I think I think they didn't want them, period. I think this was a point in time where it's just they were not allowed into the realm of respectability. I, I think people who knew Carpenter and had taste respected him, but I don't think he really became a revered, like canonical figure until the until the aughts. No, and it's also this bizarre thing where you read these reviews and it's like we're covering these. Most of these movies were not particularly well reviewed upon release. And then you get to something like Prince of Darkness and everyone's complaint is that it's not as good as early Carpenter movies. Like, it feels like he is being canonized as quickly as they are dismissing the movies that will then be canonized later. But that's like, that's what must have been very annoying for him where he's mm-hmm. like, you guys didn't like my old shit. Right. And now you're acting like it. you did because it turned out that was, you know, a, there was very important and a huge hit and all that. And now you're like, eh, he's kind of rerunning the old shit or whatever. Jonathan Rosenbaum and Dave Kerr gave it good reviews. There, you know, there are some good reviews you can find of it, but it does feel like largely it was dismissed. And I think partly also him going to a smaller budget was probably kind of viewed with disdain by some critics, you know, kind of like a, eh, all right, you know, he struck out in Hollywood and now he's making, you know, genre crap again. Yeah. I think I think it also a little footnote here is it came out of not too long after a film called Black Moon Rising, which he wrote. Hmm. And I think it was like kind of packaged as I think it was an old script that got made. I don't know. I've never seen it, but I think it kind of got packaged as John Carpenter's Black Moon Rising. And, and I don't think I don't think it was a liked film. I think that was a film in the El Dorado Eyes of mm-hmm. Laura Mars run where he was just trying to write stuff for hire. Uh, I just want to circle back to something quickly. Uh, you called out uh, Frank Carasosa, who's the makeup uh, uh, head on this movie, um, yeah. who, you know, got promoted after all his people that he had... Right. Uh, He'd been a crew guy, and right, he's, he's getting to go to the top, right. That may, name meant nothing to me, but then I was looking at the dossier. He now goes by Francesco X Perez. Cool name. 
he was the makeup guy on draft day. I know him very well. He's an excellent oh. dude. But it is fascinating because he is not primarily like a special effects makeup guy, which I guess they called out that he was just meant to be the general makeup artist. And they were like, I don't know, can you do monsters and shit? He is like Costner's go-to guy. He has a couple of the stars he works with every time like that. And a couple times he's gotten called in to do like special effects. He works with Eastwood a lot as well. He worked on almost every Costner movie during like the glory run. Um, so he can gussy up a craggy star is what you're saying. An Eastwood or a Costner or a Newman. Well, the craggiest of all. <laughs> yes. And then he has like sprinkled in a couple ones where it's like, oh, he did the alien makeups on Earth Girls are easy. You know, he worked on Avengers Endgame or a lot of Avengers, actually, it looks like. Yeah. Or two. Yeah. yeah. Right. X-Men First Class. But those movies are so fucking big, too, that like even got a lot of makeup people. Right. Right, because he was key makeup artist, which makes me think one of the 87 cast members might have said, like, he's my guy. Like, he's he's a dude who primarily is a, I have my three actors I work with, I'll follow them anywhere kind of thing. Uh, but he does not strike you as someone who is a, a special effects makeup artist, but then every time he's been called in to do it, he fucking knocks it out of the park. The makeup in this is extraordinary. Yes, like, and yes. Carpenter says, like the guy gave, basically gave him some sketches and uh, for the big transformations. And Carpenter was like, "Yeah, you're 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 in. You're the guy. Just yeah, do it." It's wild. And he does. They live too, which obviously has iconic makeup. And then, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I think Dances with Wolves then pulls him into the like he is an A list leading man. Kenny gets him. Man's man. Uh, makeup guy, but also Francesco S. Perez is fucking such a good name. Let's just. Call that out for a second. I mean, to be to be fair, it's probably easier to do Coster than to do a They Live Alien. It's probably something you know. It possibly even pays better. Keith, I mean, you haven't seen Costner at five a.m. It might be more. <laughs> he looks like a They Live Alien. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I just think it's yeah. It must be. I don't know. I haven't like working with the like the weird sensitivity with those guys. Where like Costner on Dances with Wolves versus Costner on Draft Day. Absolutely. The extra work you have to do and how you have to slowly introduce it probably right like you know hey i'm gonna do i'm gonna do this now right like you have to like Absolutely. do a new thing yeah yeah I I, look i love hair and makeup people and i always fucking beeline for them when i'm working on they anything got all the goss, well right? they got they all the, the goss, but i also think they're it, it, they can become your like onset mother father sort of like sure. home base sounding sort board of, right and you begin and end the day with them and whatever and like I, I just I don't have any goss to spill here. But we talked a lot about like his relate, like he just has this very close personal relationship with Costner for thirty plus years, where it is like he to some degree has to function as a security blanket for this guy. You know, not just in terms of like tending to his emotional needs at the beginning and end of the day, but it's also just like this guy is very uh, you know on guard about his self image. And I am the line of defense to preserve that and make sure he looks like Kevin Costner every moment. And then sometimes I design aliens. <laughs> or fucking anti-God. Yeah. The, the, the servants of anti-God, I guess. But like when, when one of the creatures is trying to, I think it's, uh, it's Kelly, right? It's uh, Susan Blanchard. It's trying to like get him through the mirror and she's doing her little like makeup mirror, right? Mm -hmm. Or whatever, like the time. I don't know what the hell is going on there. No one's really explaining what's going on there. I, you know, I guess that he can't fit through it. I guess, is that the problem, right? But like, yeah. the, a lot of the horror is fairly abstract in the sort of, you know, final uh, act of the movie. Yeah, the mirror scene is awesome. Uh, and it's done 
just it's it's a, it's done like John Cocteau's Orfei, where it's, it's so good. The mirror is is mercury, and, and you have to wear heavy protective, uh, you know, material to to reach through it. I mean, and, and Orfei is it's basically this is you get to put on these special gloves before you go to the other to the underworld, uh, which is a a very uh, a silly convention that totally works in that in that film. And and here, uh, uh, you know, the imagery is just as striking here. Cocteau and Bunuel feel like the two guys he's he's cribbing from a lot once the goo gets loose. Um, did you see this additional fact the goo that is uh, loose. the goo is loose? That was the working title for this movie. Um, did you see the additional fact JJ put in that there were thirty nine thousand bugs used in this production? <laughs> I, I want to actually I want to give credit specifically to Nick because JJ. Oh, okay. I remember. I just want to say because JJ texted me being like. Hey, the Prince of Darkness dossier is almost done. Nick's just checking one thing about bugs. <laughs> and then he was like, wow. Okay. 6,000 so yeah, bugs. 3,000 right. worms and one Emma Stefanski salivating at this trivia. <laughs> <laughs> the bugs are uh, unsettling. I don't, I don't like it. Icky. Yeah. Yeah. When, a guy when, covered in bugs and then he uh, disintegrates essentially. I was like going to say, uh, that for fall. me is the most upsetting <laughs> image in the movie when bugs come out of a man and then the man crumbles and turns into bugs. In some ways, I think the ants on the television is one of the most disturbing images in the film as well. Mm, because yeah. you know, t- you know, TVs aren't supposed to have ants on them. That's just no, not right. Absolutely not. You nailed it. <laughs> that's how you know something is immense. My TV never has ants crawling. And that's also it. that's also how you know that Keith has a keen eye. <laughs> right. <laughs> Most critics weren't able to put their finger on what's <laughs> off putting about that image. Keith cracks open the notebook and he's like, ants on TV, unusual, and then underlines unusual. <laughs> Wrong? Actually, it's, it's question mark. Look up later. Yeah. <laughs> right. Check TV. Does it have ants or no? Um uh, now I'm watching the bug guy disintegrate. Again, a very simple effect because it's really just an empty suit falling to the ground. Filled with bugs and then uh, the bugs spill out of every... And yeah, there's just so many point. bugs. Yeah. God. That moment when the, when the head just rolls off and bugs are spewing out of it. Yeah. It just feels like it's like with your Halloweens, your Precinct 13s, you know, Carpenter's innovating. Like, how can I figure out how to stretch a doll? Now he's coming back and he's like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. Right, I know I'm how just... to make like eight incredibly inventive scares for nothing. Like, you know, he's the master of horror. The master of horror. This movie also has cool map paintings, apparently. Uh, yeah. Should we talk, should we talk about the end of this movie? Oh, sorry. Map know, yeah, the, the moon over the, over the church is really cool. And, and, you know, it's only when you look at it, you realize it's a painting. Yeah. Um, yeah, the end of this movie. Okay, well, uh, there's this big mirror. And they're trying to get anti-God out of it. Uh, and he's got a big, creepy bug hand. I don't know how else to describe it. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, it's it's Kelly, um, uh, Susan Blanchard. I don't know. She's all goopy. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's trying to pull him out. And uh, and uh, Lisa Blount does the sort of noble thing. She 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 basically pushes everyone inside, including herself. Uh, it's cool. I lo- I love all the mirror stuff. Again, we don't really know what's going on, but I get it. Like, right? I sort of get the abstract. It's another place in which I'd like to watch this movie a couple more times. Not that I think there are clean, clear answers I will get from it, but just to have my bearings on it a little more. Um. Yeah. Uh, Keith, the ending. I mean, I guess it's sort of it's sort of interesting and surprising that so many people survive. 
because I yeah. think you know Donald Pleasance, Victor Wong survive. Uh, uh, what's his, you know obviously um, the main guy Jan- Simon and Simon survive. Jameson, Jameson Parker, Parker. Mm-hmm. that's yeah. his name, right? Yeah, but we lose Blout. We lose. We do. We, we you know, yeah. We do. We we lose some people. There's some. You really good have to be it's a much just... higher body count. But yeah, that that sort of noble sacrifice that that you know in the final twist realize we realize might have backfired after all. Um, the payoff for the for the dream sequence is is really cool. Um, and I, I love. The, I think it's you know whatever like kind of incoherent visual madness this film descends to. But at the end, I think that having that through line of like we're going to give you a little bit more of this dream sequence each time you see it is is a really brilliant uh way to keep people uh hooked and it's a little different every time like there, there's little subtle differences to it it's it's very i want to rewatch it just for that and um yeah you know every horror movie of the 80s has that ending of like well you thought it was over but you know right you have to have the sort of question mark ending right but this is a perfect way to do that i think this feels less cheap than a lot of those. Yeah, then you know the sort of like, oh wait, the killer is still on the loose. This is uh, this feels like it's kind of ties into the themes and, and the plot of the rest of the film. I I do like the the quick moment where they they're watching the Tom and Jerry cartoon, and you have like the fucking cat in a devil suit with the horns and the trident just poking him, and and he is it is Carpenter just kind of saying like that's pretty fucking goofy, right? That we thought about that. Now, please redirect your attention to this vial of goo. <laughs> yeah, just could have done with a pleasant death scene. I mean, the guy can sell a death scene. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, Aah! like just imagine him like finally going wild and you know whatever, getting torn apart by zombies or you know transforming into a monster. So I just that's the only thing I feel a little. Does Carpenter ever kill Pleasants off? Pleasants he is may not, right? Yeah, he is kind of unkillable in the Carpenter like. This is his last film with Carpenter too, right? Yeah, it is. And, you know, he does two, three more Halloweens, but he doesn't even die in the Halloweens. He dies off screen in the Halloween six, but. Right. Which is the one made after he died, right? It's, it comes out after he dies. Okay. So he like wanders off at the end and then you hear him go like, ah, and you're like, oh, I guess he's (laughs) That is wild. That's the run one, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's the run one. That movie is wild to watch now because it's kind of like, if you see it as Paul Rudd giving a comedic performance, it becomes a very different film. It, it's very strange that Rudd is in it. It's like the same year as Clueless. Is that the last original continuity movie? It, it yes. is the last of the of the films that are going off of Halloween 2. Yes. Right, right. When, well, right. Well, I mean, obviously, H2O is going off of 2, but it's ignoring... It's the last four, movie where Halloween... Yes. Fours? I don't fucking know anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Every time we of, try to parse this, we get is, more confused. It's yeah. picking up, you know, Halloween 5 ends with Michael Myers being freed from prison by a guy with a tattoo. And 6 is the one that's like, it's all part of a demonic cult, let's explain. And then that's never obviously revisited. That is that is 6, six exclusive. Is it druids in that too? Yes, but, the or, yeah, so, so it does connect to Halloween 3 in a way, right? It does, that's true. It all comes back around. And I'm sure, you know, David Gordon Green will wrap up his Halloween trilogy and then some other great director will swoop in and be like, I really wanted to make an homage to those middle Halloween movies with the druids and stuff. And it'll all come back. around. Well, they'll they'll hate Halloween kills and Halloween ends and they'll be like, I want to make a proper sequel to David Gordon Green's Halloween, ignoring the other two David Gordon Green (laughs) Halloween movies. What if they're like at the beginning of movies now, it's just like where they're like, to explain the continuity, this movie is connected to Halloween, Rob Zombie's Halloween, 
David Gordon Green's Halloween, nothing else. You're like, wait, how is it connected to all three? <laughs> uh, it just is, okay? I'm bringing it all together. Do you remember what a fucking like hurdle it was for Warner Brothers marketing to explain the Superman Returns thing to people and how now every movie is like, you need to understand what it's going off. So it's not, in co- but this is, it's sort of direct thematically. It's more that. And now like people in the general public talk about multiverses. It's just something that comic book people came up with to explain how comic books had existed for so damn long and could like, you know, have a functional continuity. It's right. not a good storytelling method. It's just nonsense. My daughter, who is 10 and who who loves comic books and loves the Marvel stuff and like has a much better grasp of like, you know, different continuities and intellectual property and who owns the rights. Like, I didn't understand any of that stuff at 10. I didn't have to, but she she's got it. It's a bummer that, that she has to understand who owns the intellectual property rights, though, which is unfortunately very crucial. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, and is now, I mean, it's fundamentally important if you want to keep track of what's on what streaming surface. Yeah. Because it's no longer about what aired where. It's about who ended up retaining the rights. Um, can I can I gripe about something for one second off of this tangent? You're going to gripe? Okay. I have seen people who complain about uh, the uh, Masters of the Universe show I'm on and their their complaint is I would actually like it if it was a, a multiverse story it just bums me out that it's mainline continuity to which I say then it's a multiverse story what do you mean? <laughs> Who cares? Any of you this can stuff make is whatever, whatever you want multiverse to be. you want in your head. Exactly. Also, that's how you should interpret everything, which is this is one group of people with their interpretation of how to do this thing, and everything is going to be negated or retconned or reestablished later by someone else. Like, it, just think of everything as whatever it is. This to, to have to worry about a large corporation telling you that something is canon or not at this point, like it's okay, make your own canon. It's okay, make your own canon, make your own canon. I know we're not the only, I know we're not the first people to say this, obviously, but still, if you yeah. like the thing more, if you don't think of it as being literally tied to the other thing, then that's how you should watch it. Watch it the way that you enjoy it the most. Box office game. Uh, before we do the box office game, Keith, any other Prince of Darkness things you want to hit? Anything we missed? Uh, oh, I had a list, but I think I think we got through all of them. Uh, has anyone ever seen a film with uh, Amanda Plyson in it? Oh no, uh, she's good. She's a good actress, but it, it, it's a strange and she it's a strange thing because she's a lovely woman who looks like Donald Plyson. Sure, she does. Your brain can't quite process these two things at once. Uh, I'm seeing apparently she has a small role in Gangs of New York, Woman Accomplice. Mm. Um, I know that she, isn't she the one who liked uh, Carpenter's I, Escape from New York I think it York was score? the other one because he had a daughter who was a musician who was part of a punk uh-huh. band, I believe. Uh, right, right. I think that's the he other one. He had five one. kids. Yeah. So, but I just know right. Okay, one so of his daughters. He had three other ones that I'm ignoring. Yes. How dare you ignore them? <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, he actually had five girls, all daughters. Wow. Five kids, all daughters. Anyway. It also looks like she currently works as a psychotherapist in London. That's cool. Good for her. She wanders around in a trench coat with a gun trying to seek out her past patients who she couldn't <laughs> fix. I, I, stand away, child. There's that. If we, one day we'll watch Halloween 2 in which Donald Pleasance murders someone really quickly without asking a lot of questions. He really gets really trigger happy in the later ones. It's Michael Myers. Like, it's a lot of that. Anyway, um, box office game. This movie came out appropriately 
October 23rd, 1987. Came out right at scary time. Sure. And it was, you know, for, what, $3 million? It made $14 million. Yeah. Who's mad, right? He's he's back in being, uh, you know, thrifty, being able to turn a quick profit. He's not lighting the world on fire, but uh, everyone's happy. Um, but number one at the box office in its sixth week of release, still number one, mm-hmm. is is it the highest grossing film of 1987? If not, it's right up there because it was a uh, huge smash. It's the second highest grossing film because, of course, Three Men and a Baby was number one. Of course. Okay. Yeah, so we always have to acknowledge. This is a weird fucking year. Uh, we always like to cite Three Men and a Baby as being the oddest number one of a box office year ever. Right. Uh, is this the movie that would have more conventionally been a number one and surprising that Three Men and a Baby uh, beat it? Or is this a movie that also is surprising to have become that much of a blockbuster? Well, it's an R-rated movie. It's an adult thriller. You know, like, it's just surprising. to Fatal Attraction? But it's Fatal Attraction. The so number two that highest grossing film of its year. It was a phenomenon beyond yeah. compare. Every grown-up in the world had to see Fatal Attraction. I think that's how that movie did it. Do you know who was offered Fatal Attraction? Was John Carpenter offered? John Carpenter was offered. John Carpenter. That makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, he probably would have done a good job with it. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, He would have done a job with it. I I assume he just turned it down because whatever. I think he was out of the studio. He was done with the studios at that point. Right. Yeah. Um, Fatal Attraction, number one. But also, Griffin, it's sixth week. So, and it's growing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's just... uh, uh, crazy. Okay, number two is Prince of Darkness. Four and a half million dollars is its opening. Number three is another new movie. But look, he beat the entire budget opening weekend. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's pure profit. That has for this to thing. be a, a happy phone call, right? Right. Like no one's, no one's like, you know, that's why he makes another one. Okay. Yeah. Not this is not a movie I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's from Peter Yates, the director Peter Yates. Okay. Uh, who made that's? I'm telling you that because I feel like you don't have Peter Yates' filmography, you know. On Memorize. fire in your brain. Sure. Right. But, you know, the hot rock, friends of Eddie Coyle, mm-hmm. but also like crawl, breaking away. You know. Um right. it's a legal uh thriller. Thriller. Okay. It's got a major Oscar winning star, although maybe she won her Oscar this year. Yes, this is the year of her Oscar win. 87. Um, but not for this. And yeah. it's got this very bland title that is a title that I guess is appropriate for a legal thriller. Um, the title it, ends in a T, and the T is a is a gavel. I may know this if if Griffin doesn't. Fucking know it. holy shit! Uh, it's not Jessica Lange. Uh, no, it's not Jessica Lange. I'm trying to think of major stars who win their Oscar in the late eighties. Um, I'm I'm stumped here, Keith. What's your guess? It's suspect starring Cher, right? Correct. The film is suspect. I've never never seen it. In 10,000 years. Cher, can you tell me the male lead? Anyone tell me? Can you tell me the male lead? Mm, Quaid? Quaid. Dennis Quaid is the male lead. And Liam Neeson, a Mm. young Liam Neeson, is playing the suspect. John Mahoney is the judge. John Mahoney is the judge. Look, it sounds good. Fuck this cast. I mean, you have Joe Montana, Montana, Philip Bosco. Fred, Fred Milamed, Bill Cobbs, Michael Beach. This is great. Yates is a filmography, that's for sure. Yeah. But uh, apparently, I don't know. People don't like it. I, I don't think it was a big hit. and I, It's just funny to think that Cher made 
this the same year as Moonstruck. Like, yeah, that's you don't wild. think of Cher as someone who was in a lot of movies as much as she was a good actress. No, no. And especially like Moonstruck, they were like, oh, fuck, I guess we finally got to give it to her. She's a movie star. But they were like pushing against it so much. But in eight, 87, she did Suspect, Witches of Eastwick, and Moonstruck. It's three wow. big movies. It's yeah. kind of amazing because one thing that happened when she showed up in the trailer for... Silkwood, uh, audiences would laugh. And like it would become yeah, right. she was I mean, that was just four years previous to this. Right. Well, it's like she does three Who's movies. Now, right? She does three movies in the 60s. She does nothing in the 70s. And then it's come back to the five and dime 82. Silkwood 83, first Oscar nomination. She silences the critics. Mask 85, and then 87, the three movies we cited. Yep. It's wild. And then Mermaids 1990, and she pretty much does cameos after that. Yeah, Mermaids is kind of oh, tea with Mussolini. She did have tea with Mussolini. She has Doesn't tea with Mussolini have- and she has burlesque. Um, I don't know if she drinks tea with Mussolini, but then it's like the player cameo, Prêt-à-Porter cameo, uh, stuck on you playing herself. Zookeeper, she plays a fucking giraffe or something. I'm sorry, she's a lioness. She's a lioness. More appropriate for her to play yeah, a lioness. Her and Stallone. And then, of course, she finally comes full circle with uh, Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. Only other thing about Suspect, written by Eric Roth, a younger mm. Eric Roth. Weird. Maybe it's his good. earlier roles. Uh, maybe it's good. Let's check it out. Number four at the box office is an enduring cult classic, a comedy, fantasy, adventure film hmm. uh, that I think was a reasonable hit at the time, but you know has become a bigger, beloved Princess Bride? movie. It's The Princess Bride. Yeah. Which has never been one of my movies, but is no. obviously good. A I film I find charming, and I'm still yeah. to this day somewhat surprised that it has become like the thing. Oh, come on. I love that movie. I like, no, it. I like it. I like it. I got zero complaints. I think there's a lot of those 80s cult classics that I was a little too young for. I really mm-hmm. like The Princess Bride, but like Stand By Me, sure. uh, another Reiner movie. Goonies. Um, Goonies, right. Where I, I have no nostalgia for it it just was sort of already presented to me as a as a nostalgic movie keith do you like the princess bride i do i i was never i was i think might have been i honestly might have been a little too old to fall in love with it but i do like it um and i took my daughter to see it uh at like a you know a fathom screening or something and uh uh, she liked it, but she hated. The, she was younger then, but she hated, she was terrified of the sword fighting for some reason. Like the the, the the creatures didn't bother her, but but the but the uh, sword play. Sword fighting is is pretty good too. It's like it's that's intense, pretty yeah. nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. I find sword fighting scary. I know. I we don't need to do that anymore. <laughs> You're out on sword. Fighting. I get it. I agree with your daughter. Why are we doing this? <laughs> Number five at the box office mm-hmm. on this October, this chilly October weekend. Scary. is uh right is a film i don't know at all uh let's see let me look it up uh it's a 1987 film of course oh no i do know this film of course i know this film it is a body swap comedy oh okay so is it vice versa no is it uh is it the george burns one no uh is it we're exposing it, how many body swap comedies there are is it like father like son it is like father like son Okay. <laughs> Dudley Moore and Kirk Cameron. I'm trying to remember which one it is. It might be vice versa, which is the Judge Reinhold Charlie Schlatter one. Is that right? There's one of the body swap movies from this era. Siskel and Ebert went to their graves contending was better than big, 
They were perplexed that Big was the one that broke out and that whether it was either Dudley Moore or Judge Reinhold, whoever played the adult, gave a better performance. Let me tell you, it wasn't uh, like Father Like Son because as the Wikipedia page will tell you, Ebert called it one of the most desperately bad comedies I've ever seen. And Siskel went further and said it was a cheap marketing decision masquerading as a comedy. So Siskel did not uh, play good cop. He was he was angrier. I think it was vice versa then, maybe. He, they must have loved vice versa. I mean, I don't know. I think there's one that critics kind of went for, because it's all pretty big. I and mean, Big put them all, to, well, unless you're Siskel or Ebert or whatever, yeah, they put them all to shame. But there's one that kind of got decent reviews. I, I couldn't tell you which one. I mean, it's also just bizarre where it's like, uh, like Father Like Son, 87, 18 Again, 88, vice versa, 88. 88, right. It's all happening at once. What's the one with the Hames in it? There's one with the Hames? Okay, well, 18 again is the one that's Charlie Schlatter and Burns. Roger Ebert loved Vice Versa. He okay, gave it thank three you. and a half out of thank four you. stars. Uh, and he says, like, I know, I know it's another body swap comedy, and yet it's all so well done. Yeah. And the body language from Reinhold and Savage is wonderful. I don't know. It's not like he's saying, like, he has some sort of galaxy brain take on it. He just seems to think it's a well-done version. But part of his take was better than Big, Reinhold better than Hanks. Sorry, I said the Hames when I met the Corys and the oh. I'm thinking of his Dream a Little Dream. Sure. Although I'm not sure what the plot of it is. I think it's a body swap thing. Dream a Little Dream with Jason Robards, Corey Feldman, and Piper Laurie. Uh, yep, is a body switch. Uh, yeah. I think between four characters. Oh. It's a four-way body switch. Well, that deep into the cycle, you had to up the ante, right? Yeah. J- Jason Robards, what's the swapping? And then there's a Dream a Little Dream 2. There was a direct-to-video sequel featuring the Haim, uh, the Corys, uh, you know, Feldman and Haim, uh, but no one else. That has ordinary sunglasses that lets someone manipulate the person wearing them. I don't know. Look, guys. <laughs> I don't fucking know. We got to pull out of this tailspin. It's just amazing that there were like five of these within three years. I think this is a Patreon series. Oh, boy. Uh, uh, other movies in the top 10. You've got Baby Boom, which we've discussed. The Nancy Myers. Sure. Charles kind of, kind of Nancy's breakout. Yeah. Well, I guess no. Private Banjo's happened. I'm an idiot. I'm a fucking moron. Go on. You've got the Sicilian. You're not an idiot. Uh, the I'm Michael Cimino flop that's based on like a lesser Mario Puzo novel, right? That's kind of like, you know, Italian Godfather. Which is loosely connected to the Godfather films, I believe, or at least the book is. Well, Keith, I don't think so. I, I like to think of Sicilian as a multiverse story within the Godfather <laughs> right, universe. Exactly. Uh, you've got Ridley Scott's Someone to Watch Over Me, probably one of his least well-known movies uh, with yeah. Tom Berenger and Mimi Rogers. Can I just also call out, boiling hot take, Christopher Lambert kind of weird casting for a Sicilian. Yeah, uh, Hollywood in the 80s, Really had broad definitions on ethnicity. Not on everything. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, you got a movie called No Man's Land, which I've never heard of. Oh, it's a, written by Dick Wolf with Charlie what? Sheen. Rookie dun, cop dun. movie. Oh. <laughs> You've got D.B. Sweeney and Randy Quaid. Guy investigating a string of Porsche thefts. Uh, as two guys who have spent time in the in the TV review trenches, were either of you aware of the third universe dick wolf currently has going of the fbis no 
There are three FBI shows that are about to cross over in addition to his four Chicago shows and his Law and Order universe. He's three fucking universes going. I've somehow seen about four episodes of Dick Wolf television over the many years that it's been on. The three FBI's, of course, are FBI, yep. FBI yep. Most Wanted, uh-huh. and FBI International, which is sort of weird considering that I feel like FBI, the whole point is that they're not international. Absolutely. Right. CIA. But I yeah. guess they have some international division. But it's just that thing where Dick Wolf is sitting in his chair and being like, I could use an extra $50 million. Yes. And I don't know these shows, but I'm guessing they probably have actors who you'd rather see, really good actors who you'd rather see as something that's not an FBI. Love these actors. Missy Peregrine, Connie yes. Nielsen, Celia Ward, mm-hmm. uh, fucking uh, Jeremy Sisto. Keisha Castle Hughes. Jesus yes. Christ. I mean, I'm glad this, they're, this is know, my thing. Earning. I got I got some fucking ad that was Dick Wolf saying it's finally happening. All three FBI's are crossing over. And I was like, I didn't know there was one FBI motherfucker. <laughs> and you're telling me finally all three. Just the sheer laziness too of CBS being like, we we gave you like the extremely complex things like, you know, naval cops. Right. right. It's like, but you know what? We're Now we're just doing the FBI. You ever heard of them? It's just called FBI? Really, my man? Really? I also, I just like, the thing I read was that NBC passed on it. Hmm. What is the line of thinking after Dick Wolf has created the Law and Order universe and the Chicago universe where he's like third universe, I don't know, FBI, and they're like, Dick, we're going to pass on this one. We don't think there's any juice to it. Well, I mean, network television is doing so well right now. So well. Turner's, you know, someone else had this sure thing. So well. I mean, maybe maybe he was coming to them with like, I see three shows here. And they're like, Dick, we've got three of these fucking Chicago shows. We We don't have space. space. But I just like, if Dick Wolf came to me and was like, I don't know, here's the pitch, uh, a cup of coffee, cup of coffee. I'd be like, great, cup of coffee. And we'll have like cup of coffee, Louisiana on backup. like. They're just finally launching NCIS Hawaii. Cup of coffee, cyber division. Yeah. I know that's not a dick wolf, but still. Uh, They've always got space for that. Always space. Uh, Anything else in the box office worth mentioning? Uh, Dirty Dancing. Oh, a big hit. Hmm. Was this late? This is late in the run, right? Very late in the run. But another massive, you know, word of mouth, the played all year type. Movie. I'm forgetting the specifics and the names of the companies involved in this, but that movie was supposed to go to direct a video. There was a very cheap deal for it. Then they decide to give it a little theatrical run. And then the people who had paid nothing for the video rights when they thought it was only going to be a video movie made like hundreds of millions of dollars. This became one of the biggest VHS movies ever. Pretty cool. Dirty dancing. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah, that's it. That is the Prince of Darkness. We can close the canister. Mm-hmm. They should have tried closing the canister. To be honest, that's we the can first break thing here. they should have. They should have found the guy with the strongest wrists in the group and just said, "Do a reverse pickle jar on this bad boy." Right. Um, Keith, thank thank you so much for being on the show. Long overdue. Oh yeah, of course. Anytime. Uh, I I've been mean to ask you all episodes. You are wearing a thing shirt right now. Is that I correct? Am. I'm wearing a, a thing shirt from uh, the comic book artist uh, Erica Henderson. Who? Oh, is, very uh, cool who is uh, best known for Squirrel Girl. It's uh, a it's Kurt Russell at the end of the thing. Nobody trusts anybody now. We're all very tired. I had to stop wearing this shirt for a while in the middle of the election because my wife said it uh, it depressed her too much. But uh, I thought I, bro- I broke it out for uh, for this occasion. 
I will say things really fucking been haunting me in the three <laughs> weeks since we recorded it, where I just keep on going like, yep, that's the closest analogy to every single thing I feel on a daily basis. <laughs> it just all, we're just living in a fucking Carpenter movie now. He knows. He knows. <sighs> Everyone listen to the next picture show. It's not the last picture show. It's the next one. It's going to keep going forever and ever and ever. Can I do a quick plug too? Please, Please any plug. plug. Plug everything, Keith. Plug anything and everything. Okay, well, I'm a freelance writer. I'm, I'm all over the place. I'm, you can read me at GQ and Vulture and TV Guide. Sometimes at The Ringer. I'm on Twitter at KFIPS3000. But it's always a pleasant surprise when a new FIPS byline pops up under any tree. I'm always excited to read it. I do my best to to excite the fans. Uh, but uh, you're going to actually, I'm, I'm, this is actually good timing because by the time this episode airs, my longtime collaborator and friend, uh, Scott Tobias and I are launching a uh, newsletter on Substack called The Reveal. It's, the URL will be thereveal.substack.com. And it's kind of like, our attempt to keep going with some of the stuff we used to do at the AV Club and and uh, the Dissolve and kind of like just kind of follow our own instincts in terms of uh, film criticism. So it'll be like reviews and essays, historical deep dives, lists, that kind of stuff. If if you like what we've done in the past, uh, you should sign up for it. It should be it's going to be fun. I just found out about this. I'm very. Excited. I will sign up. I I, uh, I mourn the Dissolve on a daily basis. Whenever I see another stupid fucking argument going around. Based on clickbaity headlines, I'm like, I wish, I wish, I wish. It's it was it was nice, and I'm glad. And you know, we had like a nice community there. People who are actually smart, and the comic section was yeah. good. And um, the archives are remain up there. They occasionally disappear, and I have like sent out panicked emails to people at Condé Nast. At some point, I'm afraid they will disappear forever. Uh, but uh, it's there for now. I, I both reread old dissolved pieces on a regular basis and discover old pieces I had missed at the time. It's oh, always thanks. fucking worthwhile. It was the best. Well, we want to keep that spirit alive with the reveal, hence the name a little bit. So, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, good. We should also mention your book, Age of Cage, is coming out early next year. Yeah. Did you guys get copies? You're supposed to get copies. We did. Okay, we good. Did. good. I mean, good. I did. I did. Yeah, it was supposed to come out in October and, and then COVID production delays uh, pushed it back. It's going to be March 29th. It is 40 years of Hollywood through the career of Nicolas Cage. So it's about Nicolas Cage movies and like big changes in Hollywood as reflected through his career. And I hope it's, I hope people like it. Um, if you like Nicolas Cage films, I write about every single one of them to you know, sometimes just a sentence, but often a lot more. So you, you have watched every single one now. I have, except for that um, Christmas Carol film from the early aughts, the, not the Jim Carrey one, the other one that no yes, one's seen. No, yes, the Jimmy T. Murakami Christmas Carol, which is uh, Kate Winslet's in as well, has a weirdly stacked cast. Yep. Kate Winslet did a pop song for it that charted in Britain. Oh, wow. You know what? I need to, all right, um, stop the presses. I'm going to go back and do a whole chapter on this. But no, I watched everything else up through, including all the Red Box era stuff. And- so this is my fucking thing, Keith, is like 10 years ago, my friend and I tried to watch every single one for a magazine that went under before we got to publish our thing on it. And we watched, I watched at least all but five up until 2011. Right. The Christmas Carol was one of the ones I hadn't seen. There's what's it called? The Boy in Blue the like the fucking rowing drama. It is about yep. It's about a famous Canadian rower. Right. It is not. It is not good. There's Firebirds. I hadn't seen. Like it was. Firebirds it was, is bad. It was, there a few. Were only it was a few. Five. It was only five. I hadn't seen out of what was like forty at that time. So you saw. Yeah. You, so you saw Zandali. You saw absolutely. West. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Zandali uh, is incredible. Yes. Yeah. Um. But I was. I like. I. I had a near comprehensive view. And the moment that ends is like the next month Seeking Justice comes out. And it's like, 
now he's going to do 12 movies a month and most of them go straight to fucking taxi TV. Yep. Uh, and uh, I watched them all kind of in a mad rush to finish the book. Uh, it's interesting, though, because there, there are some decent movies in there. This is and, my question I want to ask you quickly. Uh, not to cut off your stream here. Sure, sure. Of of the post-2011 Redbox run, right, discounting legitimate, quote-unquote legitimate films he's made in that time, what is the best and what is the worst, in your opinion? Um, okay, well, is Mom and Dad too big a title for this? Um, I would say by a hair. Yeah, yeah. so, uh, you know, people, well, it's good. It's, it's actually quite good. And, I like um, Mom and Dad, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's good. So the, the best one um, that you probably haven't seen is The Trust which co-stars Elijah Wood. Yes, yes, I've heard uh, good things about really that. It's a really stylish debut by this filmmaking team that I don't know there's anything else, but but um, you know, it's this Las Vegas heist film. It's really uh, nasty. And uh, Jerry Lewis plays Nicolas Cage's father for a scene, which is not like an amazing scene, but it's just kind of cool to see that cuz you know, uh, Lewis is one of Cage's idols and and uh, yeah. Uh, so that's that's but there's some other decent ones in there too. The worst one is a film called Rage. Oh, yeah. Uh, yep. Did you see that one? Uh, I, I have not. I avoided that one. So you yes. avoid that one. It is the, you know, he does a lot of revenge movies because those are easy to make um, and, you know, easy to sell. Mm -hmm. uh, but I refer to them. There's kind of like a Mad Libs period where it's like, where is this revenge happening? Is he a cop or is he a gangster? Um, and who's the bad guy? In this case, he's a former gangster in uh, the uh, budget friendly location of Mobile, Alabama. Uh, the the uh, site of so many uh, uh, thrillers that you love. Um, it's, 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 it, you know, he doesn't really phone it in that often. I know people say yeah. he phones it in, but there's always like something to latch. There's usually something to latch on. I, I think he literally did not phone it in once until 2011. That's when like the financial troubles stack up and like mm -hmm. two out of every eight movies are just sleepwalked. It's rough watching his filmography just expand like yes. just a year by year, five a time. Yeah. Yeah, but I feel, I feel like that's really 2011 is when the sleepwalking happens. And there's usually and like there's usually something going on in those later films. And sometimes like I'm going to make sure I get the title right. There's so many of them. Uh, but it was it was a film called no, not not Looking Glass. That's that's actually one of the better ones. Uh, a film called Between Worlds, where he was obviously just given full license to do whatever he wants to, mm -hmm. including, uh, you know, it's a fairly graphic love scenes for the first time in a while in Nicholas Cage's. But Interesting. It's but it's, there's including, like, at one point he's reading a book whose author is Nicholas Cage. Uh, uh, it, is, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't necessarily hold together, uh, but it's, it's a lot of fun, uh, uh, that movie. As fun as a movie in which uh, choking plays a, a major role uh, can be. Wow. Uh, I just want to uh, put a bow on this by saying, Keith, uh, you, you questioned what the uh, promising filmmakers behind the trust have done since then, the Brewer Brothers. Uh -huh. And it seems like they have primarily done music videos for the Chainsmokers. Sure, why not? Hey, it's it's a little bit money. <laughs> Smoke those chains. I need to throw out also that that the pig is amazing. I'm sure you probably discussed it. Well, but, uh, know, pig is incredible. Yeah, pig is good. You know, it seems to suggest him emerging possibly from this dark phase. But he's had, but, I mean, he's had a couple. Though. I mean, like Mandy, he's had like every year he's had one movie where he's clearly giving a shit and working with an iconoclastic filmmaker. Right. Agreed. Right. And yeah. People like the Prisoners of the Ghost Land movie, but not universally. That one's sort of more of a tweener. Yeah, it's, 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 it's fun. I found it kind of a little wearying after a while, but, uh, right. um, but it's, it, it's worth it. Is, is Willy's Wonderland worthwhile? It's worthwhile to watch 
cage in it because it's a wordless performance and he, cool. he really commits to it. It's a movie where it's basically a ripoff of Five Nights at Freddy's, best I can tell. Yeah, um, right, and, right. And it's a movie where they do not have a budget to make the movie they, they need to make. It seems to take place in two black rooms, you know, almost entirely. Uh, but he's fun at it. It's trying a little too hard to be a cult classic right off the bat and, and doesn't quite get there. Uh, no taken. And uh, I'm very excited to, to rip in the book. And thank you so much for sending uh, us copies. Oh, enjoy. I actually, it's not, I need to, I, you know, I have a little extra time. So I'm going to write about Pig so that, that you're getting a rare. Oh, uh, Pig is edition, a good button, though. Not Pre-pig final. Pig edition. Yeah, 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 right. Collector's item. And, uh, and next picture show, like you said, you guys take a new movie, you take an old movie that's thematically linked in some way, right? You pair them up. It's a lot of AV Club and Dissolve, right? Yeah, yeah. it's me and Scott Tobias and Genevieve Kosky and Tasha Robinson and uh, various guests. And we never had you guys on. Maybe maybe we need to figure out the perfect episode and hey. ha- have you on. Sure. Anytime. Anytime. Happy, to, happy to do it. And I got to say, Keith, thank you for doing the show. And thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media, Lane Montgomery, and the great American novel for our theme song, Joe Bowen, Pat Rounds for our artwork. J.J. Birch, Nick Lariano for our research. AJ McKeon, Alex Barron for our editing. Go to blankies.rad.com for some real nerdy shit. Go to patreon.com slash blank check for blank check special features where we are now still doing The Mummy. I believe so, yes. Still got plenty of mummy. We still got plenty of mummy left. I think we're getting ready to do the Tom Cruise mummy up next. Is that possible? Um, no, no, you get, is... you get to the tomb of the dragon emperor first and then, and then the Tom Cruise. Gotta mummy. get there. Did you do you the old universal mummies? We would split that into its own thing. Cause there are okay. enough of them. That's one of the few universal franchises that like actually had multiple movies in one strict continuity. And it gets, it gets the kind yeah, it does. And the continuity, it gets weird. It, it, it's, it's kind of fun to watch them in order. Frankenstein and Mummy are the two I'd really like to do. And I'm pushing very hard to to do one of the... I say pushing hard makes it sound like David's resisting. He's not. But it's a pet project of no. mine that I'd like to do one of the Universal Monster series next year. And perhaps doing Modern Mummy as a prelude to that. Maybe, yeah. Maybe we do it at, at, right, at Halloween time again. I don't know. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 yeah that'd be fun. Tune in next week for They Live, which they do. Uh, yes, they live. They do live. And that's... The titular movie. It's going to be a good episode. It's going to be a good episode. It's going to be a good episode. We're not going to say the guest over. It's going to be a good episode. And I did say yes. Plural. Yes. Right. right. Um, uh, guest plural. And yeah, it's been a listener Patreon. And that's it. We're done. Yeah. Great. Take yeah. us away. Yeah. That's that's it. We're done. And as always, what? Th- that's it. I don't know. What do you want from me? <laughs>